Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and what I should do when my genes pull knives on each other in darkened alleys. I'm Rob Wiblin, head of research at 80,000 Hours. Cooperation and conflict are absolutely fundamental concepts that one really has to have on hand if one wants to understand the world or figure out how to improve it. Last year, we did an episode on the theory around one form of conflict, episode 128, Chris Blackman on the five reasons wars happen. And in today's episode, with the academic evolutionary theorist and podcaster Athena Actippus, we cover the theory around one entirely different sort of cooperation and conflict that occurs between genes and cells. As Athena lays out in her book, The Cheating Cell, cellular cooperation expresses itself in the crazy wonder that is multicellular life. And when that cooperation breaks down and turns into conflict, that conflict expresses itself as cancer. But similar forces of peace and cooperation, as well as cheating and conflict, arise at all different levels of complex organization across our universe. So we also take a look at other scales that these phenomena appear within cells themselves, in human societies as they exist today, and perhaps in the future between civilizations that are spread across different planets or stars. Understanding deeply these sorts of ideas is useful across so many domains that I can definitely recommend listening to this one, as well as picking up The Cheating Cell if you'd like to understand these concepts even better. All right, without further ado, I bring you Athena Actippus. Today, I'm speaking with Athena Actibus. Athena is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University, where she's the director of the Cooperation and Conflict Lab and the Human Generosity Project. Her research interests lie at the intersection of cooperation theory, evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, and cancer biology. She also started the Zombified podcast, uh, where she and a co-host explore various ways that organisms, including people, can be tricked into ceasing to pursue the actual goals that they have or, or ought to have. In 2020, she wrote The Cheating Cell, How Evolution Helps Us Understand and Treat Cancer, which is going to be the starting point for today's conversation and was a book that I really loved. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Athena. Thank you so much for having me here. I am really excited to talk to you about all the things. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think um, some, some of my friends have been a little, it's, it's, been, it's been just cancer, cancer, cancer for me uh, this, this week for, for my housemates and, and colleagues. So I'm going to be able to get all of the cancer stuff out of my system and then stop, stop hassling them about it. I can, I can hassle all of the all of listeners all at once. Um, yeah, so I hope we're going to get to talk about what cancer really is at a theoretical level. Uh, and what we might possibly be able to learn about societal cooperation from intercellular cooperation. Uh, but first, as always, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Oh, what am I working on at the moment? I am like so deep right now in trying to finish my next book, which is um, called Everything is Fine, How to Thrive in the Apocalypse. So um, yeah, it's like a playful take on um, existential risk and how we can deal with it as uh, the social beings that we are. Yeah. Um, how did you end up writing that book? Um, gosh, I ended up writing this book because I just could not stop thinking about and talking about these issues. You know, when um, even before COVID, you know, I was sort of already like, using the apocalypse as a like a way of thinking about and talking about existential risk that I thought was maybe like a little bit more playful and fun um and and appealing than than just 
you know, the sort of more straight approach to it. Yeah. And then the pandemic happened. And then that kind of just like accelerated, like, you know, very quickly, like people were just talking about the apocalypse. Like, yep, we're in the apocalypse. Um, and I think like that actually provided some levity almost to to just be like, yeah, it's the apocalypse. And so so I just kind of like leaned into that and, uh, you know, started doing more like live streaming. Um, we started Channel Z, which is, you know, television in the zombie apocalypse, which is basically like just an excuse to make a bunch of TV shows that address issues like, you know, what are the risks that we're facing? Um, how can we work together in community to deal with it? How can we prepare as individuals? And, you know, and how can we just understand our world using evolutionary biology, um, using a really interdisciplinary mm. approach that includes both science and, and humanity? and sort of considering policy and ethics, like bring all of those things together, bring all those people together to, to start thinking and talking about those issues. So, um, so that really kind of like got me going in that direction. And then at some point I was just like, yeah, I want to, I want to write a book to get these ideas across, like with a playful tone, with illustrations. And yeah, it, it ended up being something that Workman was really interested in. And so, you know, then um, just kind of, got set on that that pathway and it's been really fun i have to say nice all right well uh we'll come back to the apocalypse uh, i think uh, later in the interview but uh I suppose for now, we're going to do cancer. Yeah, you know, it's like, uh, what are we going to talk about? How about like some really morbid <laughs> topics like cancer and the apocalypse, you know? Just choose, choose which one. <laughs> um, well, I suppose a more positive framing on it is corporation. Uh, so I guess I said in the intro that you're a corporation theorist. Because what is corporation at kind of the, the highest level of abstraction? Because I, yeah, I guess your whole thing is thinking about corporation at a, at a high level, and then you can use that to analyze all kinds of different um, ways that different organisms or, I mean, even molecules molecules that you've been uh, uh, interact with one another. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my my whole thing is like looking at the world through the lens of um, cooperation and, and conflict too, sort of as these organizing principles. And, you know, just like with, you know, with physics, the rules of physics, the laws of physics apply at all scales, right? Now, some laws of physics apply maybe more at some scales than others just because of the way you know, the universe is set up, um, I think is really similar with the laws kind of underlying cooperation. Um, so there are many things that apply across systems and scales, but then there's some things that apply more to some systems than others. So, um, you know, for example, you can look at things like division of labor, like that's a basis of cooperation across pretty much all systems that have cooperation that you can have division of labor or, you know, in many systems, that's something that you can have. Um, economies of scale, right? That's an, another one where it's like, as you scale up, some things become more efficient. Um, maybe you reach a point where that stops and then it becomes less efficient, right? So so there, there are principles that apply. Um, another one is, you know, that the larger and more complex a group is, all else being equal, the easier it will be for cheating to arise and mm. go undetected and potentially undermine the system unless you have other mechanisms there that can sort of, you know, protect, monitor, respond. And so, you know, that last that last idea, that last sort of, you know, thread is really what the big picture inspiration was for 
the book, The Cheating Cell, right? So thinking about our bodies as this cooperative system um, and as cancer, you know, as, as a breakdown of that, that cellular cooperation. But yeah, you know, big picture is we can look at cooperation at all these different levels and using different methods, right? And so that's another thing that like has been really important to me in my career is not just having one methodological approach or one disciplinary approach. So, you know, bringing anthropological fieldwork together with, you know, psychology experiments together with computational modeling and, you know, doing all of that also in the context of considering policy implications, ethical implications, um, and having that be part of the same conversation, the same research project you know, not splitting those things out and then having like one, you know, place where you're like, oh, let's try to bring it all together. Mm. No, it's like part of the process is having all those things happening at the same time, getting that cross fertilization and um, being able to, you know, be truly interdisciplinary as a result. So, so that's what I love. And uh, that's, you know, a lot of what, what I've been doing in my career up until this point and hope to continue to do. Nice. Okay, so the structure of the conversation that we're going to have here is um, we're going to work through some of the, the key insights about cancer biology uh, that you uh, put in the in the cheating cell. Um, then we're going to zoom out and consider analogies to cooperation at the human level, and then maybe even the, the species level of, or the planetary level. And then we uh, might uh, maybe maybe zoom in uh, and instead talk about a cooperation uh, within cells uh, rather than between them. Now, I guess before I saw this book, I thought of cancer kind of just as a disease that arises somewhat at random because of chance mutations in genes that uh, happen happen to go wrong. Um, and I guess there's a sense in which that that that, that is true, but it's, yeah. but it's not the whole story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I guess the, the, the cheating cells made me see the tension between cancer and non-cancer very differently and kind of as a far more fundamental phenomenon uh, that comes along with, with life and all its forms and probably and potentially could forever. I guess, first up, what is the opposite of cancer? Uh, the opposite of cancer, I would say, is multicellular cooperation. You know, so basically the opposite of cancer is us. It's having a functional multicellular body mm. that is cooperating effectively in order to make that multicellular body function. Yeah. And then so what is what, what is cancer basically? And, and I guess also what, what traits does cancer have and, and how is that relevant to yeah, the lack of cooperation? Sure. So, so we can look at um, multicellularity as arising as a result of five foundations of multicellular cooperation that made it possible. Inhibition of proliferation, the control of cell death, uh, mechanisms for resource transfer, right? Because as you get bigger, you can't just rely on diffusion for resources. You have to somehow get resources into, you know, the, the middle basically of a, of a clump of cells. And you also have division of labor, right? So Having multiple cell types can do multiple jobs, different expression states, you know, things like that. And then you have the creation and maintenance of the extracellular environment, right? So this is all of the things that are on the outside of the cell that make it, um, make the organism more viable, you know, proteins that are produced, the, you know, matrix in which, you know, all the cells are embedded. And that's an environment that can be, you know, really healthy or it can be quite literally polluted by, you know, acids and things like that um, if cells are, uh, you know, being wasteful and messy, which they can be, right? So they can sort of be, you know, cheaters in that sense of polluting their environment. So, so you have these five foundations of multicellular cooperation. And what we see with cancer is a breakdown in each of those, right? So cells will proliferate when they shouldn't. Um, they won't die 
when they should, they avoid apoptosis. Mm. Um, they they won't engage in the kind of division of labor that they should, right? They will uh, not sort of do the jobs that they're supposed to do. Um, they'll monopolize resources and they will trash the environment. And so you can get a breakdown in all of these foundations of multicellular cooperation. And, and in fact, when you look at, you sort of, you know, take the sort of like you know, grounded in theories of evolution of multicellularity approach with these, you know, foundations of multicellularity. And you map that on to, you know, how have cancer biologists looked at the phenotypes of cancer? So there's this framework called the hallmarks of cancer. That's sort of classic work. Um, the breakdown in those foundations of multicellularity map very well onto the hallmarks of cancer. And, you know, we don't have to get into the details of this, but there's a couple places where it doesn't match up 100%, which are actually like really interesting and useful then to sort of take these frameworks from thinking of the evolution of multicellularity and ask, are we missing something in how we're defining cancer? Like, for example, division of labor originally was not really part of the hallmarks framework. And, you know, we've suggested that a breakdown in differentiation should be considered a hallmark of cancer. And now things are kind of coming around to that actually being, you know, part of how people are looking at, you know, the sort of next generation now of the hallmarks of cancer. So I think part of the mental leap in, uh, well, part of the, the, the change of framework that, that I've had in my mind thinking about cancer is, so when we, when we imagine bacteria in the environment or bacteria living inside our cells, we understand that they're facing evolutionary pressures to figure out how they can replicate more, how they can get resources, how potentially if they're bad bacteria that our immune system doesn't like, that they are going to learn to evade the immune system and avoid our antibiotics and, and things like that. We don't normally think about ourselves in that way, because we don't normally think of each individual cell in us as having its own kind of interests, its own its own pursuits and its side project and its desire to, uh, to, to replicate. It's got a little side hustle <laughs> right. going on, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm just a liver during the day, you know? So <laughs> really what I want to be is a metastasis. Um, but, um, but of course, within our bodies during our lifetimes, our cells are facing the same kinds of evolutionary pressure that a bacteria within us would. So the cells within us, they replicate much faster than we do. We only uh, replicate ourselves every 20, 30, 40, 40 years or so. But, but the cells are turning over incredibly quickly, so their generation time is much faster. So they're evolving way more quickly than, than we do as an organism. And that gives them evolutionary time potentially to become more like bacteria that might be parasites on us. And that's kind of what, what's going on here. Yeah, is there anything you'd, you'd add to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... It is a a big shift of perspective to because you know especially as like somebody who's trained in evolutionary biology and you know like the default is to think about evolution as this really 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 slow thing right but if you if you think about like what do the parameters of evolution look like within the body for cells that are evolving, you know, or potentially evolving inside the body, you have super short generation times. Um, you have just completely mind-blowing population sizes, right? And once you start getting, you know, mutations existing, which like, you know, you can get what's called a mutator phenotype where, you know, mutations just are sort of like going crazy. You know, it's just, there's so much variation. Um, So if you have, you know, those kinds of parameters, then evolution by natural selection, um, and also, you know, drift too, but, you know, evolution by natural selection can go really, really fast. And the opportunity for 
evolution by natural selection to operate, you know, just over the course of like cancer progression is much vaster than all of the evolutionary time that we have had, you know, as humans since, you know, Homo sapiens came about, right? Mm. So it's a lot. It's, you know, orders of magnitude more. Um, And so we just have to like shift to a different scale. Like I almost think of it in like, you know, what was that show? Like when, you know, we were like three years old where you like shrunk down and like went inside the body. Yeah, the magic bus. I think that's an American thing, but uh, no. Yeah, well, yeah. So it's like you have to like go like, you know, kind of, put yourself on a different spatial scale and time scale and just like, you know, shift your thinking and be like, oh, okay, like the body is a world with all these different like ecosystems in it and the cells, you know, like they're existing on a time scale that like, if we're going to map it onto anything like what we experience, like a day is at least, you know, 10 years for them, right? So it's like, it's a very, very different way of thinking. And then once you kind of shift to that, you're like, oh, wow, there's so much that could be happening in terms of adaptation inside the body, you know, how cells are actually evolving inside the body over the course of our lifetimes. And and that that shift just opens up all this potential for using evolutionary approaches and adaptationist thinking to, you know, generate hypotheses that then you can test. So I don't know how much you guys talk about adaptationism on the podcast, but like the, you know, basic idea. Yeah, go, go for it. it. Should I say what the basic idea of it is? It, it might be the first time we've said that word on the show, if it's possible. Ooh, oh, wow. <laughs> Amazing. Ground. Okay, okay. Yeah, so um, adaptationism is, is basically this idea that you can look at sort of the world through this lens of what's the function of things of, you know, like if an organism has um, some physical or behavioral characteristics, what is the the function of that? And it's a way of kind of, you know, bringing in an evolutionary perspective where, where you're, you're kind of thinking of things as like, as if there's a purpose. So you you actually kind of use some of this language earlier of like, you know, bacteria are trying to survive. Well, you know, they're not like, oh, I I do this inside the body, (laughs) right? But they, yeah, (laughs) but they like behave as if they are, right? And so, you know, one of the ways that you can kind of think of adaptationism is this like, you know, you're looking at what's happening as if it is with the purpose of surviving or reproducing. And so- when you take that lens, thinking about cells in the body that come from the lineage that originated with our, the concept that was us, right? Uh, it really starts to to change things and opens up all these possibilities for evolutionary and ecological processes that could be going on inside the body over the course of our lifetimes. Yeah. One thing that makes it less natural to think about cancer this way is that, of course, we know that the endpoint of cancer is the death of the organism that hosts it and the death of the cancer itself. But of course, evolution has no foresight. This is a good thing. You've always got to remember that there's nothing that stops evolution from driving an organism to extinction. As long as at every step, the changes are good for the individuals that host them. Absolutely. Actually, maybe that's a little bit extreme. Uh, and in fact, maybe that leads very nicely to, to, to the next question, which is, let, let's wind back. I, I, remind, remind me, how long ago was it that multicellular life actually uh, managed to get off the ground? 500 million years to okay. a billion years, some, some, something, you know, approximately. Yeah. So, so go back <laughs> half, half a billion years or so, um, give or take. Um, 
Until then, it's all been kind of individual cells. But I guess these these cells are maybe trying or there's there's evolutionary pressure for them to get the benefits of being larger and, ha- and having multiple cells and specialization uh, if they can make it work. But how on earth do they make it work? Because once you have multicellular organisms, then they're always at risk of being undermined from within by any individual cell that defects from the interests of the organism as a whole, even just in the short run, and then brings the whole project crashing down uh, by becoming cancerous, basically. I remember when I was studying evolution at university, there was this discussion of group selection among humans. So you could have a question of, is it possible for humans to evolve altruism and cooperativeness because, say, groups of humans in the past that were more cooperative tended to thrive more and reproduce more? And so, you know, the, the individuals who had that attitude would then become more numerous. I think in general, evolutionary theorists, at least back when I was at university, didn't really like this idea because it suffers from this problem that any group of cooperators can then be really easily undermined by a cheat who is able to fool everyone else but and take advantage of the group and then bring the whole cooperative system of the group, uh, uh, undermine it, and then, and, and then make it not work. So I'm kind of wondering, why doesn't multicellular life suffer from that same uh, fatal issue? I have so much to say about this. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, first pass is multicellular life does suffer from this very issue. Cancer is a problem for all multicellular life. You know, somewhere between 30 and 50% of people, you know, get cancer by the end of their lives. So it is a problem. Now, I think thinking has shifted a little bit in the last few decades around, you know, these ideas of group selection. And I've always kind of been like a an advocate for using like multi-level selection as the language. Um, Because I think that the idea of group selection or the phrasing of group selection has has been kind of like almost a political issue within, you know, Mm. within like evolutionary biology with people being like, oh, I'm a group selectionist or I'm not, right? So it's been sort of like a, almost like a marker of coalitional identity more than anything else. And um, the fact is you can always get natural selection to act in situations that meet the criteria for natural selection. And there are situations where groups can meet those criteria. And so if you're in a situation where those criteria are met, then you should say, yes, group selection can happen when, you know, you have heritability and you have, you know, differential fitness and you, you know, when you have situations where those criteria that you should just say, yeah, you can have selection acting on that level. One way of looking at, you know, what happened in the transition to multicellularity is that you basically shifted from situations where you had, you know, individual cells getting selected to having groups of cells getting selected. So, so you could say that actually was, you know, group selection or is continuing to be group selection and that we're made of 30 trillion cells that are cooperating and coordinating to make us viable. Mm. Um, Now, I think that, you know, the way that a lot of people have sort of framed this in order to kind of stick with the sort of like individual level kind of analysis and individual level mathematical analysis is to say, you know, there's, well, there's a transition in individuality where you go from, you know, it being individual cells to now being organisms that are getting selected in their own right. And that's absolutely a legitimate way to look at it as well. But all of this is really a matter of, you know, how you are, um, what, what assumptions you're making about, you know, what constitutes a group 
versus what constitutes an individual. You know, when you want to make that, you know, mental or mathematical leap from um, what you're saying is a unit or not. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm pretty pluralistic about this. I think, you know, just like sort of open, you know, talking about how like, all the laws of physics apply, like at all scales, but in some, you know, some apply more than others just because you're dealing with different kinds of entities. Um, I think that's the case with a lot of the mathematical and conceptual models around the evolution of cooperation that, you know, some apply more at some levels than others. And um, that it, it's useful to have many of these tools kind of in your toolkit to be able to use um, in the, you know, in the right context. And, and, multi-level selection, I think is one of the ones that's like a, a little bit more general because you can, you know, be like, oh, this is a situation where the selection pressures are greater between groups because you have more variation between groups than within them, mm. for example, right? Um, so I think uh, think that it's a, it's a more broadly useful framework. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I guess we could see from the result that bodicellular life exists, that basically evolutionarily this, this, this challenge was overcome. And it was overcome by the creation of the immune system, basically, by all of these all these sentinels, all of these processes going on within a multicellular organism that are constantly monitoring each cell or like most cells to see whether they're acting suspicious and then to try to put a stop to it if, uh, if they seem like they're not coordinating properly with the group. Uh, and it's by investing lots of effort in that that multicellular life has become viable, basically. Is, is, is that right? Yeah, I would just add, you know, it's not just the sort of, you know, immune system. We have really three different levels on which you have monitoring and responses to cellular cheating. So the first one, I would, you know, start with the cellular intrinsic mechanisms, i.e. what the cell is doing on the inside to monitor what genes are being expressed, what, you know, what proteins are being produced, what the cell is doing in terms of its physiology. You know, genes like TP53, they're basically like listening in on like all the stuff that the cell is doing from the inside. And if it seems like the cell is maybe doing things it shouldn't be doing, then it, you know, raises an alarm. And, you know, initially, like that alarm halts the cell cycle, you know, starts engaging the DNA repair process. And if that doesn't work, then it's like, you know what, we're just gonna so that we don't mess things up for everybody else. So yeah. it's kind of like the cellular conscience. Like you could think of it that way if we're going <laughs> to, you know, the soul gets like ashamed. have some fanciful yeah. metaphors. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, sh- <laughs> can I swear on this podcast? <laughs> Definitely, um, yeah. Oh, okay, good, good, good. Um, yeah, so so that's the one, one mechanism is, or one set of mechanisms. And, you know, um, TP53 is not the only one. There's many, many, you know, genetically based systems inside the cell that are monitoring the behavior of that cell and changing the state of that cell, right, to do DNA repair, halting cell cycle, engaging, you know, cellular death. All of those things are options to, to keep the cells from making a problem for the rest of the body. Yeah. So, so you have that level. Um, and then you have the neighborhood level. So cells are constantly monitoring each other and constantly sending signals to each other. They're sending survival signals and anti-apoptosis signals, right? So, um, so basically, is cell suicide. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and sending growth signals as well. So basically, you know, the survival signals, the you know, those anti-apoptosis survival signals are basically saying, cell, you're good. 
you know, hang in there with us. And then the um, growth um, signals are saying, you know, yeah, you can keep dividing. Everything's all good, in my opinion, with you, right? So that, that again, anthropomorphizing, but it's useful, I think, because, you know, yeah. these same kinds of processes, um, you know, there's elements of that that happen, um, you know, across all systems. If you don't, if you don't use this language of intent and purpose, I feel like the sentences just become so absurdly convoluted. It's, yeah. it's such a slicker way of thinking about it. Although I guess you have to have all of these red flags go off when when you're doing it uh, wrong or doing it in a way that's, uh, yeah, that, where the evolution wouldn't actually cause it. But sorry, yeah. sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you've got those two levels. And then you have also, so the systemic level, which you were referring to earlier, where, you know, you have this uh, sort of broader system that's monitoring the body for like regions where maybe something isn't right. And um, that's a, it's a really good backup system for those other systems that, that we already talked about. Um, and it also, you know, plays a broader role in just, you know, sort of like looking at if there's bacteria or viruses that shouldn't be there. Mm. Now, uh, e- but even like the cell intrinsic system, then the neighborhood systems, they're, they're not just monitoring sort of for these sort of internal things in the cell. They're also sort of monitoring for viruses and stuff like that too. So there's overlap um, in terms of some of these, these mechanisms that are, you know, there just to sort of protect us from things that might be um, trying to hijack us or undermine the, you know, broader evolutionary interests of the whole organism. So Yeah. So an interesting thing that I, I hadn't really, uh, I guess, I guess I'd, I'd heard of contagious cancer before, but I'd never really thought about it uh, before this book. But if you think about it in the, in the abstract, it is kind of weird that cancer can't be contagious because in as much as one person has these cells that are refusing to get shut down and are just proliferating as much as possible, if they go into someone else's body, then or another, another body of the same species or possibly even a different species, then why, why wouldn't they proliferate as well? And basically the answer is the same as the reason why it's difficult for pathogenic bacteria or viruses to do it, that we have all of these systems in order to make sure that that can't happen. But in the in the very early days of multicellular life, this was a massive challenge before uh, organisms, I guess, had figured out how to prevent contagious cancer so effectively. But the funny thing is that it seems like with viruses and bacteria, we're constantly in this difficult arms race. It feels like it's a bit of an, an even fight between us and these various other pathogens, between our, our immune system evolving and improving and them trying to work to get around it. But with contagious cancer, with most organisms, it feels like the immune system has just done such a good job that we very rarely see contagious cancer. We only see it in unusual cases like Tasmanian devils where they have very low genetic diversity and they also spread the cancer by literally biting wounds into um, other individuals. And then, um, as, as we'll discuss later... Wound healing releases growth hormones that then are conducive mm-hmm. to, to cancer production. Yeah, what, what, uh, yeah why? just as an aside, yeah. I just have to point out, like, if there is a species in which, like, a zombie apocalypse is going on, <laughs> right. right, is the Tasmanian devils <laughs> are so biting right. each other's faces and spreading contagious oh. cancer? I mean... Does, does the cancer make them more vicious and cause them to bite more? Maybe it makes there, them mad. There is a hypothesis yeah. that, uh, you know, that the cancer actually is affecting aspects of um, of their behavior, um, wow. including also their reproductive behavior. So I, I don't know this literature that well, but there's a, there's definitely um, some interest in it. And uh, I have a grad student who's uh, intrigued by this as well. So maybe, we'll, maybe she'll be working on that. This is like a full zombie apocalypse. Uh, brilliant. I, I t- yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, sorry, right? it's, ter- yeah. it's terrible. So, it's tragic. But. It is. It is. <laughs> we have to, I mean, that, but that's the thing. It's like, we have to like approach all of these terrible things with a little bit of humor. Otherwise, how are we going to, you know, keep working on them? Very true. So, 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, why do you think that we've mostly successfully beaten um, contagious cancer, but not so much uh, bacteria and viruses and sometimes fungi? Yeah. Uh, so I think that one of the things that's m- actually missing from the way that a lot of people think about cancer, especially in, you know, sort of oncology and cancer biology, is this window of like what was going on very early in multicellularity, which, you know, you made a, a reference to. But if you consider, you know, like the early the early stages where you've got like some, you know, groups of cells and they're they're growing and they're, you know, producing like public goods, you know, that like are good for all of the cells in there. And if you get like a cell, you know, coming from this other group and popping in there, um, it can, you know, get the benefits of what, you know, that other group has created. It's just, you know, it's a, a free rider problem, a, a common pool resource problem. It's like, you know, the sort of classic kind of kind of issue. And I think the very evolution of multicellularity is not just about regulating the cooperation within an entity that is, you know, beginning and might evolve, um, you know, that cheating, but the early evolution of multicellularity was the evolution of prevention of contagious cancer. I think, I think we should be thinking about that as one of the fundamental things that was going on in the early stages of multicellularity. And so a lot of these systems that we have um, that, you know, are part of our immune system have their, you know, many of their origins in that original selection pressure in one way or another, or at least that's where we need to kind of start when we think about what kinds of mechanisms might have evolved. That adaptive problem of cells just, you know, popping in and uh, trying to get the benefits of that entity. So many of our cancer suppression systems could potentially, originally, have been in place for prevention of contagious cancer, Yeah, right? It's an open question, you know, like what of our cancer prevention mechanisms have to do with that versus having to do with, you know, maybe the more modern problem of preventing cancer from the inside as opposed to this, this is like, hijacking from the outside. I'm seeing some academic politics going on there. How, how, can, how can that be an open question? Surely we can just theorize about this and kind of tell that it sort of has to be true, unless all of the mechanisms that we originally designed 500 million years ago to, to prevent cheating cancer have subsequently all disappeared and been replaced by something else. Um, yeah. Well, so, you know, Rob, when you like <laughs> are working in like an area where you're like applying theoretical, new theoretical Mm. frameworks, you're bringing things together. There are many places where like you start to question the assumptions that are out there about how things work. And, you know, sometimes there are a lot of really good reasons for those assumptions. Other times they're not. I, you know, I think we're kind of on the same page of like, you know, I like to be like, okay, first principles, this is what we should assume. Like, it's almost like a Bayesian kind of thing, like coming from first principles, here's what I think a reasonable assumption is. But I think that, you know, it's It's, important to, to to, yeah, so so it's important to acknowledge, right, that there's like a community of researchers who, you know, have been working with a particular frame, have made progress on problems with a particular frame. And so I think that, it's a good thing to frame it as like, you know, this is a this is a hypothesis that mm. comes from <laughs> these first principles. Yeah. It, you know, makes some predictions that could be tested and, you know, encouraging people to... People to, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I can't, I can't do... Uh, that's, that's the other thing. It's like, I can't test all of the 
hypotheses myself that come from this. And so it makes much more sense to, it's like an opportunity for us to consider an alternative hypothesis based on evolutionary first principles. Totally. Okay, sorry, yeah, I, I interrupted you there. Um, I think we're, we're heading towards, um, yeah, why are our anti-contagious cancer mechanisms uh, so successful, maybe relative to our ability to stop other pathogens? Yeah, right. So a lot of that, I think, is because the very evolution of multicellularity required that, you know, that that occur. And, you know, also the kinds of threats that you could have from a human cell that is trying to, you know, hijack a human body are specific in a way that you could get, you know, specific anti-cancer mechanisms evolving for. Versus if we're thinking about, you know, pathogens, we're thinking about viruses and, you know, bacteria and uh, fungi, right? You have so many different species, so many different mechanisms of action. And so you have to get evolution on every one of those specific kinds of potential risks or some, you know, general purpose systems, which we have as well. But yeah, I think, you know, that it, it's worth that that perspective. It's not just like, oh, human cells versus pathogens. It's like human cells as one kind of thing that could be an infection. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, well, yeah, one way I might rephrase that is kind of um, every, every contagious cancer has to start from, it, its starting point is a healthy human cell, and then it's got to modify from there. And that's like a very limited design choice. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're talking about viruses and bacteria, they've got a very blank canvas on which they can write any possible, uh, you know, infectious behavior or, or life cycle or, or so on. And I guess maybe also, vir- I mean, cancer, human cancer cells, um, they reproduce unusually fast relative to uh, our normal cells because they, they, they try to avoid or they try to evade the limits on, on, on reproduction. But they're not replicating and evolving quite as fast as viruses and bacteria potentially can because I guess they're, they're even smaller and they just have a faster life cycle. Is, is that generally right? Um, yeah, there, I mean, there's certainly, you know, I mean, viruses, right? Like if they're inside a cell, they can replicate like crazy Cancer cells, I think, you know, the current thinking is that um, they, you know, can reproduce as quickly as, you know, 24 hours or a little less. So they, they, they can get pretty, pretty, pretty fast. Pretty swift, yeah. But you're absolutely right that there's there's just a much broader canvas on which to paint if you consider all of the potential pathogens um, that are out there in the world. And so um, also, I mean, we need to recognize that like, there's a pretty big repertoire that cancer cells um, can access as well because our our genomes have a lot of things that can be messed with to, you know, make these cells that do things that are evolutionarily unprecedented, at least for like what a, you know, cell in a multicellular body should do. Yeah, so by having a much larger genome than a bacteria, it can potentially have much more complicated capacities. And also, it's like, uh, of course, a human cell is kind of ideally already situated to live in a human body in a way that a bacteria might 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 not be. So it does have that that sort of leg up. But I guess mm-hmm. evidently, it's turned out to just uh, balance out into being. Usually, it's easier to prevent contagious cancer than contagious bacteria. But yeah, do um yeah. do plants and fungi get cancer as well as animals? It all comes down to how you're defining cancer. Yeah. So there's like, you know, or sort of like, uh, there's some like politics about that, right? Like, you know, <laughs> academic politics, yeah. right? So some people are like, oh, you can't call that cancer. Yeah. Um, but if you're asking, you know, do you get disruptions in cell proliferation and apoptosis and 
differentiation of cells, right? The division of labor, like all those things. The answer is yes. Yeah. You, um, you know, it, essentially any multicellular lineage that you look at, um, you see examples of at least what we could call cancer-like phenomena where, you know, cells are proliferating when they shouldn't, you know, for the sort of, you know, survival or reproduction of the organism um, and where, you know, you can have disruption of the division of labor of the, you know, differentiation of the cells. So, you know, I've known people who've said, oh, unfortunately, you know, my pet has cancer, it's going to die. I've never known anyone who said my houseplant has cancer and unfortunately it's dying. Uh, Yeah. In what ways is plant uh, or fungi cancer different than that in animals? And it seems like on balance, it's a bit less visible or like less of a big deal. Yeah. So there's actually one of one of the things that happened like early on in my like interest in cancer was that I actually came here to Arizona before I lived here and saw a crested saguaro cactus. Now, this is a pretty, pretty awesome thing. There's a decent number of them around here um, where rather than, you know, having like a, you know, that sort of classic shape, right, where they have like one or a few, right, you know, kind of trunks coming out. I mean, you get this like crown kind of on the top. It just like fans out. It's beautiful. And, And I was like, wow, that is, um, you know, that really is like a plant cancer. You have this disruption in the growth. And when I when I looked into the physiology of it, you basically have a situation where, you know, the growth tip, like, you know, on the, on the tip of any plant that's growing, it's usually a few cells um, that are, you know, they're called meristem cells or basically like the plant equivalent of stem cells. And they as they proliferate, they create like, you know, a sort of linear thing. But you can get a disruption where rather than like just a few cells in a little clump, you have some cells in a line. And then what ends up happening is as those cells are all proliferating, they start to kind of like fan out and you get like, you know, all these almost like brain-like patterns or crown-like patterns. And so in a way with fasciation, it's called fasciation, it's almost more visible. You can see it, you can envision a little bit more like, well, what is going on with cell proliferation when you have these disruptions? Just because the physiology of plants, you know, you don't have stem cells just stuck inside all of the tissues. They're kind of at at the ends, right? So I think it's a really cool lens to think about like what happens with cancer. And they're also, because they're like, they're structurally beautiful, really. Um, it's a way that I think we can engage with cancer that is um, emotionally more accessible and um, just has a framing that I think for a lot of people feels more inviting than other ways of thinking about cancer. And um, we actually created a, a garden here um, with crested cacti to kind of teach about how cancer is this phenomenon that exists across life. And um, so kind of cultivating it as a space for people to go to, to remember people who've been affected by cancer and, you know, using it as a a way of thinking about how can we live with cancer as opposed to just like fighting it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I love, I love, you know, plant cancers and, you know, the, what they, what they do for us on so many levels in terms of thinking about like what cancer is, how it manifests. And, and, and with plants, a lot of times they can survive with these fasciations. Um, they're more vulnerable often than plants that don't have fasciations, but if they're taken care of, um, they can thrive. And so, 
you know, there's just a lot of like nice metaphors there, right? Yeah, For yeah, yeah. thinking about <laughs> how we can deal with cancer differently. Yeah. I used to say this very stupid, well, this, this now sounds incredibly stupid to me, but I used to say that I, kind of plants don't get cancer because plants are cancer. And I think what I meant by that is that plants have a very flexible body structure, which allows them uh, to absorb, I guess, tumors or cancerous behavior in a more elegant way where it's less fatal to them. Uh, or, or like more, more often you just, they could just grow off in some direction and that doesn't necessarily kill the entire organism. And a plant can just like let go of part of its body, potentially kill off a particular trunk and then uh, ca- carry on if it's if it's not working out. Is that kind of the reason why it seems like plants die less often of cancer? I mean, you, you're saying, you know, 30 to 50% of people will have cancer by the time they die. It doesn't seem like 30 to 50% of wheat stalks uh, have cancer problems by the time we're, we're harvesting them. I suppose maybe with plants that are that short-lived, um, they are, it's just like they haven't been around for long enough. But, you know, what, what about old trees? We don't see old trees uh, dying this way. And I, and I imagine it's something to do with the fact that cells move around less within plants. They don't have as much of an aggressive circulatory system. Uh, and maybe also just that they can absorb the damage uh, more, more flexibly. Yeah, so plants, totally awesome, right? Like they're just so cool. And we, you know, I think a lot of times we sort of are, you know, not just anthropocentric in terms of thinking about like how the rest of life works, but um, like mammalian centric. Mm. And, you know, a lot of plants, um, there's a huge amount of genetic diversity that exists like within them, right? Like different branches will be like really genetically different. You can have fruits that are genetically different from each other. And you you can get, you know, this process of natural selection really happening even like within a plant, you know, with different branches thriving versus others. And um, yeah, and then like dropping branches and sometimes those can actually grow into new trees. I mean, right. the, the biology is just really different. It's bonkers. Yeah, it's, just, <laughs> it's so different from what, you know, what our sort of assumptions are as these, you know, like honestly not very resilient organisms that we are. We think we're so awesome, but like, you know, I mean, with the exception of like some, you know, fanciful Marvel movies, like we can't even regenerate a limb, you know? Like it's, uh, we're, we're kind of pathetic. It's when pathetic. It, yeah. Embarrassing. <laughs> it's, it's embarrassing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, that that broader frame of, you know, just thinking about, well, how does life you know, solve these various problems? How does life, uh, you know, adapt? Um, how, how do some organisms adapt during their lifetimes, like actually genetically adapt, not just behaviorally adapt? Um, I think that that expanding that frame is not just like really important for how we look at and think about biology, but it's also really fun to like know these things, right? To like be like, oh, wow, yeah, that, you know, a plant has uh, got, you know, all of these unique mutations in, you know, different branches potentially that could yeah. lead to differential survival and reproduction, you know, and then like, yeah, it, it just, it it blows my mind. And of course, many, like, it's not like all plants are the same. Like there's all sorts of different ways that different plants work and different ways that their, you know, reproductive systems work. So yeah, there's, there's so much um, and I'm no plant expert. I'm just a, I'm just a fan. So yeah, another fascinating thing in the book, 
Elephants have way more cells than humans, and no, no surprise there. So I think it's like a hundred times as much or something, and yet they get deadly cancers less often than, than we do. And then that's super counterintuitive on its face because you'd think that the probability of you developing a seriously dangerous cancerous tumor would be roughly proportional to just the total number of cells you have, because each one of them has an opportunity to to itself become cancerous. Yeah, why is it that elephants don't get cancer much more than humans? That is a that's a great question, and um, you know, again we have to think about definitions here, right? So because a lot of elephants actually have growths, have tumors, they're just not, you know, metastatic and cancerous and they don't, you know, threaten their their lives so much. But to kind of get back to your your main question about, you know, why is, you know, an elephant less likely to die of cancer than we are or than a mouse is, right? That's a big contrast. And, you know, to think about sort of, you know, those, those big picture issues, we have to consider that there's different selection pressures on organisms that are long-lived and large versus short-lived and and small. And, you know, long-lived large organisms, they have to invest a lot more in what we call somatic maintenance, which is just like a fancy way of saying like fixing your body and making sure that like the body maintains itself well. So in order to have a chance at reproduction, a large long-lived organism needs to be doing a lot more, you know, cellular things to take care of the body, including DNA repair, you know, monitoring for cellular cheating and all of that. So organisms that are larger and longer lived, more robust cancer suppression mechanisms than organisms that are smaller and shorter lived. And, and you know, and this ties in with an idea in evolutionary biology called life history theory, where it's basically... Yeah, yeah. Can, yeah. can you explain that for a bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, you've probably heard the phrase like live fast, die young, right? Like it's, uh, you know, it's something that's kind of part of our collective consciousness, right? There's this idea that you can kind of like have a strategy of, you know, like living for a long time and living slower, or you could like live fast and, um, you know, potentially uh, burn Not out. For um, yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, and so there's a sort of version of this that just applies to like all life that evolves, which is um, that organisms, you know, in general have trade-offs between surviving and, you know, taking care of their bodies, maintaining their bodies, and um, reproducing. Um, And so depending on whether an organism is prioritizing survival or reproduction, um, that's going to change how their, you know, physiology and behavior um, manifests. And it it can have a lot of knock-on effects then that uh, are self-reinforcing, right? So basically, you know, a mouse is a fast life history strategist, we would say. It's, you know, invests in becoming reproductive quickly, having lots of offspring, and doesn't invest a lot in its soma, in its body, in, you know, things like cancer suppression. An elephant, on the other hand, you know, grows big, grows relatively slowly, has fewer offspring, but invests a lot more in each of them, and does a lot more somatic maintenance, does a lot more taking care of the the body itself, um, which is is necessary if you're going to be able to stick around long enough to successfully reproduce if you're a slow life history organism. Yeah. I kind of like to picture life history study, imagining evolution kind of embodied in these engineers or something who are standing around kind of chatting about the animals they're going to design. And one of them's like, I've got this great idea. It's going to be called an elephant. It's going to be massive. It's going to be this huge organism. It's going to have no predators because nothing's going to be able to eat it or beat it. And it's going to be able to reach up really high in the trees, get get all this energy. Imagine another engineer being like, 
that's never going to work. It's going to have way too many cells. It's going to have cancers all the time. What, what are you thinking? You're an idiot. Um, and the other engineer says, no, I've thought about this. What we're going to do is we're going to invest a ton. Okay, yeah, all right. It's got all these benefits. And what we're going to get is we're going to invest a ton of energy and molecules in making sure it doesn't get cancer. So we're going to have real like tripwires everywhere. So any cell that seems to be acting out, we're going to we're going to shut it down right away. And okay, this is going to this is going to slow down the growth. We're going to have to it's going to have an overhead, all right? <laughs> but at the end of the day, we're going to have this massive elephant. It's going to live for ages. It'll be able to have lots of uh lots of babies because it will live a lot, live, long, live long enough. You can imagine yeah, and then you could do the opposite with a mouse basically. We're like, "Okay, forget it. We're not going to worry about the body. It's just going to it's just going to replicate like like crazy." Um yeah. is, that, is this basically the basically the idea? I love this. And, and I mean, you're you're just like being like the adaptationist engineer right now. Yeah. You're like, all right, how are we going to design this thing for this function or that function? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a it's a great cognitive tool to use to just like wrap our minds around like how are things going to evolve given constraints and, you know, what kinds of adaptations would we expect given that you want an organism to be able to do this thing mm. or that thing, right? So yeah, I think, uh, you know, the engineering metaphors are, are are right on for thinking about, you know, how do organisms evolve to, you know, maximize that combination of survival and reproduction that, um, you know, that whatever that combination is that they're sort of, you know, aiming for or choosing. Again, I'm using scare quotes just because, you know, we're using this like as if intentionality as a shortcut for thinking and talking about something that is, you know, a long, complicated process of natural selection acting on all of these, you know, mechanisms. But but we can use this cognitive shortcut as long as we we acknowledge it's a cognitive shortcut. Yeah. So. I just remembered in, in uh, our annual feedback for the show, uh, th- there's one person who wrote in their feedback, uh, everything Rob says about evolution on the show is wrong. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't elaborate on that, so I don't know. I can only imagine this this, this poor soul is just hating this episode. I, if you manage to stick with it long enough, please please email me and tell me what I've been saying wrong about evolution on the show. I would... Uh, I, I was I was I was very curious. Um, anyway, continuing with maybe wrong things. What is the? Uh, I, I think we're I think we're pretty good. You know, we just need like the right caveats in there. You know, yeah. so I think we're good. Um, I, I guess I slightly went over quickly what the downside is of having this slow life history strategy and these uh, and like a very large scale. But I guess one thing is if you're going to lower massively the probability that each cell becomes a cancerous or dangerous tumor. Uh, which you have to do if you're going to have lots of cells, then you literally just have to invest in a lot more proteins to do the monitoring. You have to do a lot more double checking every time you duplicate the genome to make sure that no, like even fewer errors are are getting through. Are there other other, other downsides like that that people should be aware of? Um, you know, other than the sort of like cellular bureaucracy that you have to deal with, like if you're an elephant, <laughs> it's like, oh, can it's I like do this, Byzantine, please? Yeah, it's like this Byzantine <laughs> thing that you have to get, go through to get permission to do anything, yeah. I submitted the request three weeks ago. What's going on? You know, uh, can I please divide now? Um, yeah, I, I mean, there there are all sorts of trade offs. I mean, like one of the you know basic principles of sort of like you know thinking in evolutionary terms is that you know there there are going to be trade offs. If you want to divide quickly, then you know you have to deal with the potential of having more mutations, right? And so then if you don't want to have that trade-off like you you can be stuck up against the fact that well there's actually physical constraints to you know if you're going to divide and check the dna that takes actual time right 
So, so, so yes, you know, you can make more proteins that monitor things. You can, um, you know, even try to get as much friction out of the system as possible. Um, but eventually, you know, there are some trade-offs that you just can't escape mm. um, once you, you know, get to a certain point when a lot of things have already sort of been optimized in terms of, you know, getting, getting those systems functioning yeah. efficiently. So, so one time that you need to have cells divide quickly is when you sustain an injury, say a skin injury, and you need to grow that back. Or I suppose like our intestines are constantly sustaining a bit of damage and then and they have to really have pretty rapid cell turnover in order to fix that because they're just exposed to a lot of tough situations. Yeah. Is it case that, that you know elephants, if they sustain a cut, the cut doesn't grow back so quickly or maybe their their cell turnover within their stomachs and intestines isn't as good as it is for, for humans. Yeah, so, you know, I, I actually, I'm not sure how systematically that has been measured in elephants, but there is a, a general um, set of trade-offs um, with, for example, wound healing and cell turnover and, and cancer susceptibility. So, you know, so if we think of an organism that can heal a wound quickly, right? What's going on there? Um, well, the process of wound healing requires cells to be proliferating quickly and to be moving to close that wound. Mm. And it's good to be able to do those things quickly, right? Because if you don't, you're more likely to get an infection. You're more likely to, you know, have your ability to do things yeah. impacted, right? If you if you heal less quickly. So there's a lot of benefits to um, to being able to close a wound more you know, rapidly than, than not. But if you do that, you also have cells that are, you know, more likely to be on a hair trigger for increasing their proliferation and moving if the environment is like a, you know, suggests that there's a wound. And so, you know, one of the things that, that you actually sometimes see in tumors is that the physiology inside the tumor kind of looks like a wound that doesn't heal. Mm. And um, so, you know, by being able to heal a wound, you know, we have like a set of buttons, the levers, right, that can kind of get pushed and that leaves us susceptible to cancer. And so, you know, the more rapidly your wounds can heal, potentially the more susceptible, um, you know, those organisms will be to cancer because the cells are, you know, sort of erring on the side of being able to heal wounds quickly so that they, you know, are less likely to die of infection and less likely to have functionality impacted for as long. Yeah. Yeah. One thing we maybe skipped over a little uh, bit, bit quickly is with, so with a, with a, with a mouse, say, um, it could invest more effort in, uh, you know, ensuring that there's no mutations uh, in its genome when its cells uh, replicate. And that would have a long-term benefit where potentially for then as long as the organism lives, it has avoided those mutations. The problem is, as a mouse, your odds of being predated, your odds of being killed in the environment are really high. So, so, why, like, so why would you want to be planning for years ahead when you're unlikely to survive that long anyway, or at least the odds are far lower for a mouse than an elephant? And that fact that you might well die of other reasons anyway, so let's not think about the long term, that then greatly reduces the evolutionary pressure in favor of maintaining, building, ramping up these anti-cancer measures because they just don't carry as much importance because you'll probably be dead before too long regardless. Yeah, Absolutely. That's a really important part of life history theory, which is, you know, what are the selection pressures, right, that 
make it more likely that an organism is going to evolve to be a fast life history strategist versus a slow life history strategist. And having um, what's called, you know, high extrinsic mortality, right? Like having the chance that you will die from something random in the environment. If that's high, then the organisms will evolve to invest less in somatic maintenance Mm. because, you know, it could just be gone like that. So, you know, versus situations where the resources are a little bit more stable, um, then you get selection for slow life history strategies. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think we've not done enough background to to ask this question. There's a, there's a whole lot of people who are working on trying to extend human life and slow down aging. And I guess as part of that, they're going to want to ramp up these mechanisms, these anti-cancer mechanisms uh, that we have, in order to prevent us from developing these these uh, these, these cheating cells that that, that that create problems. And potentially, I think there are avenues to do that. Uh, there are people that you know thinking about like other drugs that we can do to basically ramp up these exi- like to give greater intensity to these existing processes that that we have to try to prevent cancer. But it sounds like in so doing, we would produce some problems. Uh, for example. If we did manage to try to reduce aging and extend uh, human lifespan this way, would our uh, injuries heal less quickly? And would we have to be more careful about you know anything that went wrong in our intestines because the, the cell turnover wouldn't be what it was? Yeah, there's potentially a lot of you know inadvertent trade-offs um, that you know could arise. Um, there's also you know a sort of tough bind of like you know if you want to extend life by reducing the risk of cancer. And you interfere with things like cell proliferation and, you know, the sort of rejuvenation of tissues Mm. that stem cells help us do, right? It's like, well, how do you have your evolutionary cake and eat it too? You know, how do you both like make sure that the organism is, you know, renewing itself properly while at the same time not allowing that renewal capacity to get hijacked by, you know, agents that Misbehaving cell, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, and and this is part of why you know cancer is such a tricky problem is because you run up against all of these trade offs, and if you you know you think you've got it like cornered over here, but then you know you've got like all these things happening over here, so you're like, oh wait, no, I got to get over here. So it's it is a it is a slippery thing to think of. You know, okay, well, you know, how would we eliminate cancer? And what would we lose if we tried to eliminate cancer, right? So yeah. it, it's there are a lot of trade-offs, and we're not going to get around that because cancer is a susceptibility that is just built in to being a multicellular organism. You know, we can evolve a lot of mechanisms to detect it, to respond to it, and those systems can evolve to be pretty good in terms of the efficiency and, you know, reducing side effects and trade-offs and things like that. But there are fundamental trade-offs that we just can't escape. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to suggest that there's no way that humans could be better from our well-being uh, point, point of view. Uh, because, I mean, for, to start with, elephants exist. They have a much lower rate of cancer per cell than we do, or at least dangerous cancer per, per mm-hmm. cell than we do. And they are a functional organism. So mm-hmm. there are directions that you can go here that aren't an engineering uh, dead end. I suppose it's just that we probably would face some other trade-offs and we might have to try to compensate for the problems that we might be creating elsewhere. I suppose if you were trying to do this from birth, then one issue that we haven't talked about is that you might grow a whole lot slower because, uh, you know, a, a baby growing is closer, it's like its cells are behaving more closely to cancer than an adult's uh, cells when they're just in maintenance because, of course, they're proliferating all the time. Yeah. <laughs> the, the message is get bigger, get bigger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, 
the better a job that you want to do at sort of avoiding these trade-offs, also the more complex all the systems have to be, which then in itself creates vulnerabilities for the system to be more hijackable. So, you know, like there, there is a lot that can potentially be done, but like how good are we going to be at anticipating what the side effects are going to be and, you know, making sure that those are trade-offs that we want to make for ourselves or for the next generation? I think, you know, there's there are a lot of issues that we definitely should be thinking about and grappling with when we think about cancer and the future of cancer, because it's not it's not as simple as just, you know, oh, what's the magic bullet to make cancer go Send away? Send less cancer signal. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a new theme, cancer cells, they're cheats by nature. They're cheating on the cells around them in the organism that they're a part of. But that presents them with a problem that how do they coordinate among themselves? Uh, can they, is it possible to maintain honor among thieves, uh, so to speak? To what extent do cancer cells figure out a way to cooperate among themselves? Or are they all kind of stabbing one another in the back as well? Well, you know, anytime you have the conditions that will select for cooperation, like you can get the evolution of cooperation. And 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 so, yeah, on a first pass, we can think of cancer cells as cellular cheaters. But, you know, if they're in a situation where they can produce growth factors, not just for themselves, but for their neighbors, then, you know, especially if you have clones, right, you have the same genetic lineage, very easy to evolve, you know, this sort of cooperative trait of producing growth factors that promote the growth of the cells around as well. Um, You can also get division of labor, right? Like some cells specializing in producing growth factors, other cells specializing in evading the immune system, even other cells specializing in reproduction, right? So there's certain kinds of cancer cells. We call them cancer stem cells Mm. because they, you know, they're the ones that replicate and there's a lot of cancer cells that don't. And, you know, one potential explanation for why that is the case is because you have a sort of proto-multicellularity almost going on where some cells can be specializing in the reproduction side of things and other cells can be specializing in, you know, doing all of the things to help that little cluster of proto-multicellular cancer protoplasm (laughs) get around and and replicate. So it's uh, a... what, 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 once yeah, you have a cancer, though, that has developed yeah. this level of uh, cooperation, because so cancer cells are kind of always one step away from wanting to defect on the cells around them because because kind of their nature. What does it look like when cancer gets cancer, and, and like does does that happen very much? Yeah, well. So this is sort of the, you know, idea that like you can have like a hyper cancer or like a meta meta cancer, right? And I think in practice, um, yeah, anytime that you have cooperation, say you have a cluster of cells that are all producing growth factors, um, you know, if you get a mutant that stops producing that growth factor, um, they could potentially gain an advantage as long as they're in an environment where growth factors are being produced, right? So whether or not you get the evolution of cheating or the extended evolution of cheating is going to be dependent on being able to sort of maintain a population of entities that you can keep exploiting. So there's, you know, I think there are, there are some barriers to like cancer cells even kind of getting to the point where you would have the evolution of sort of like hypertumors or hypercancers just because constantly sort of at every stage you have cheaters that like emerge and are sort of getting purged because of the population structure or, you know, other factors. Um, Yeah, because I mean, the thing is like, yes, within any group, right, the cheaters are going to do better than the others. 
in the group. But once you expand your frame and you realize, oh, there are multiple groups, this is like a meta population. Some groups are more stable than others, right? And the groups that are more stable than others tend to be the ones that are more cooperative. Then, you know, that actually really changes the dynamics a lot and makes it so that cooperation can be favored. So it's... uh, on, on, on this model, you'd expect like a lot of, you'd expect, you know, a tumor to grow and then kind of collapse as it's undermined from within, but then another tumor to grow because they figured out they're still cooperating for now. And so they take over and it would be like quite a dynamic situation. Is, is that accurate? So, so you can get dynamics like that happening with um, the, the blood supply to tumors. So, you know, basically, you know, the cells can be signaling, you know, for more, more resources and sort of opening up the taps, right, from the, Rest of the uh, from the circulatory system. Yeah. And, you know, and as that happens, actually, you know, it, it, it's very similar to what, you know, like an irrigation system where the upstream individuals, if they open up the taps all the way, you know, they're depriving the downstream individuals. And, you know, actually, you can also get the collapse of the sort of infrastructure, because if all the taps are opened up, then you don't have enough pressure inside the vessels to maintain the flow. So, you know, you you can get this sort of like collapse, this like civilizational collapse, right? right? Um, Because of um, basically exploiting of the the commons, you know, there's like not, not a good resource regulation set of mechanisms there. Mm. So so that kind of dynamic does happen. But, you know, there are a lot of other places where you can get the evolution of cooperation and cheating. And, you know, honestly, to me, the scariest thing about cancer is the cooperation side. And I think that, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about this, you know, kind of like working from first principles to, you know, make some predictions. And um, I think if, you know, if we look at this from a first principles kind of perspective, it's quite likely that early on in the dissemination of cancer, so, you know, you have a primary tumor, but then you can get metastasis, right? Which is the real problem in cancer usually, right? It's the, you know, systemic dissemination of these cells. Um, I think it's quite likely that, by the time you have a metastasis that, you know, is is visible in, um, you know, any sort of screening, um, that very often that might have really come from a long lineage of clusters of cancer cells that were sort of selected on the basis of being already able to cooperate effectively in order to extract resources, reproduce, and move. So, you know, my colleagues and I have written about this some, and I, you know, I wrote some about this in my book, but I think it's, it's one of the sort of most neglected but most important evolutionary dynamics and evolutionary processes that, you know, is going on in cancer, potentially going on in cancer. So, you know, when we look at when we look at metastasis, we, we might be looking at something that is actually the result of, you know, many, many, many generations of selection on group level phenotypes of, of cancer cells already. So, so that's yeah. something that I think... Um, it's a very evolved beast. I, yeah. So I, I think that requires a lot more attention. Um, that possibility requires a lot more attention than it has had up until this point because it, it has, you know, very different implications for how we might be treating metastasis, right? If it is the result of many generations of selection on a, you know, collective phenotype or set of collective phenotypes. Yeah. 
One really uh, mind blowing thing in the book is uh, I remember I was on the tube and I was listening to this and I and I, I thought I knew the answer to it and then I was completely wrong. So basically, you, you set up in the in the book that we we have uh, this gene and this like I guess set of processes that were called I guess the the TP fifty three gene, which mm-hmm. collects a lot of information about what's going on in the cell and in the local environment in order to decide whether the cell should commit suicide, and so it's trying to look for funny business and see you know, if, if A is wrong and like B is triggered and there's also like X, then okay, then we're going to shut down this cell. We've got to, got to shut this down because it's too high a risk that I've become cancerous now. Now, interesting thing is that because so much work is being done by this one TP53 gene, protein and general system, that creates a single point of failure where if you have a, uh, a really destructive mutation in the TP53 gene such that it cannot function anymore, then your chances of that cell becoming cancerous go way up. And so you might think, why wouldn't you have a more robust system where rather than put so many of your eggs in one basket, why not have lots of different processes going on at the same time, all, all independently deciding whether the, something has gone wrong and, and the cell should uh, commit suicide slash uh, apoptose? Now, think, think about audience, like, why, why, why do you think it is that the cell puts so many eggs in, in, in one basket? And yeah, I wonder, what's, what's the answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, so two things. So one thing is there are many different processes that are all sort of going on. Um, it's not just TP53, but it is the case that, you know, like you said, all of this information is kind of flowing through you know, TP53. And that's the case for many of these other systems where, you know, there is sort of one point where if you break that point, then the whole system can get Mm. messed up. And yeah, so then the question is why, you know, why have that sort of, why have everything flowing in to one spot and then flowing out? And one, one potential explanation for why this is the case is that, you know, in order for a cell to really sort of figure out if there's a problem, or not with the cellular behavior, it needs to integrate information from many, many different sources. So, you know, for example, earlier we were talking about, you know, wound healing, right? So it would be important to know, right, if the reason that the cell is um, proliferating and moving has to do with being in an environment where that's actually what is beneficial for the organism, right? Is this a wound healing situation Um, or is it not? And in order to be able to integrate information from all of those different sources, at some point, it all has to come together. And so you can potentially have, you know, these sort of points of vulnerability um, because you need to integrate information across a lot of different um, domains, I guess you could say, in order to actually sort of make a smart decision, you know, in, in, in scare quotes, um, right? So for the, because it, it has a very different meaning, right? You could say for a cell to be proliferating and moving if it's in a wound healing environment versus if it's in a normal tissue environment. So the downstream consequence of what should happen is going to be different in those two cases. Yeah. Maybe an analogy would be if, if you had a really big company, and the CEO say, you know, at the end of the year has to decide, should this company expand or should we make layoffs? Should we be growing or shrinking? You might think, well, that creates a single point of failure where, you know, if the CEO is a, has bad judgment, then this is going to really mess things up. Why don't we have two different people who each only look at half of the information from the organization? And then <laughs> and then if either one of them thinks we should expand, then we'll expand. You can immediately see the problem there that if uh, they're doing this stuff independently and they're relying on different information rather than just duplicating it, uh, then they're blind to half of what's going on. And that's 
going to potentially make their decision making a lot, a lot faultier. Yeah. So, but elephants have lots of redundant copies of this TP53 gene or something like that, right? Yeah, some of them are not functional, but uh, yeah, so you you can get, you know, genomes with multiple CEOs, I guess yeah. you could say. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, but then the question is, you know, what, what happens with those over evolutionary time? Do they um, continue to process the same information? Do they differentiate um, into, you know, processing sort of different strategies? streams of information. And I mean, I like thinking about it in in these sort of information processing terms more generally, because I think that we we tend to sort of look at the cells in our body as like, you know, oh, they're just like, you know, blobs of biological stuff. But actually, they're computational systems that are taking in huge amounts of complex information, processing it, and then changing, you know, gene expression as a result. And every one of our 30 trillion cells is doing it every millisecond, right? So it's it's mind-blowing. And I think it, you know, it forces us to consider possibilities for the kinds of things that might be going on in our bodies that we might otherwise think of as like impossible or, you know, anthropomorphic. But no, because there's actually a lot of information constantly being processed by every single cell. It is quite funny that I feel like I couldn't consciously do the mental work that even a single cell in my body is doing. <laughs> so, so much. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> there's so much information processing going on that, yeah, it's, uh, it all, but it all has to be this automatic mechanical thing rather than something that's conscious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You think that it might be the case that the human body sometimes opts to produce, uh, not very dangerous tumors in order to kind of crowd out the appearance of more dangerous tumors. Uh, Yeah, can you explain that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, whether you want to call it like a a tumor or not depends on like how scared you are of the word tumor, right? But I I, I do think that there are situations where if there's a mutation or there's sort of a disruption in the sort of local environment in a particular spot in the body, that it can actually, you know, there's a situation where it can make sense to have a clone proliferate that doesn't have a a high chance of going on to be cancerous so that it can take up that ecological space. So, you know, wound healing would be one situation where, you know, perhaps it makes sense in some contexts for cells to take over those sort of, you know, open ecological spaces that are good at um, replicating quickly, perhaps because they have some mutations that might, you know, in some cases be associated with cancer, but are less likely to actually create more vulnerabilities Mm. in the medium term or long term. And so, yeah, this is, you know, I think it's it's a counterintuitive idea, but it, uh, there's, you know, there's some evidence that, you know, you do have these sort of, you know, hot spots for mutation where if you do get a situation like a, a wound, it might be more likely that you get a mutant arise that sort of allows for that quick proliferation, but doesn't create other vulnerabilities that you might get if it was just sort of any random mutation that could confer some selective advantage for the cells. Yeah. One question I'm going to skip over, but I'll tempt people to buy the book uh, by by teasing them with the idea. So think if you can of what would be the benefit of treating a cancer patient with a chemical that has a similar structure to chemotherapy, but isn't toxic at all, uh, how that might help. And if you you want to know the answer, Mm -hmm. you could go buy the cheating cell. Um, Go buy the cheating cell. (laughs) (laughs) In all good bookstores. 
In the book, you suggest that cancerous tumors are more likely to evolve, to spread, to metastasize to the rest of the body when their local tissue environment uh, seems like it's running out of resources or the or its access to energy and resources is very volatile. But I would have thought naively that the, these mutations that foster travel to the rest of the body would arise kind of just randomly in proportion, basically, just to the number of cells that are present in the tumor. Am I, am I missing something about the evolutionary process here? Well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that the population size is, uh, is critical for sort of what's the likelihood that you'll get the emergence of a mutation that might affect any, any aspect of physiology. So if there's smaller population sizes in, you know, regions where there's lower resources, that, that's going to certainly affect the likelihood that a mutation would arise. But then the question is, if you have a mutation that affects movement. Um, and, and that could be a mutation that actually just affects even the threshold for movement that the cells have. So they can be, you know, more or less likely to move given, um, you know, a certain level of resources. Mm-hmm. So once you have any mutation that affects movement or the likelihood of movement, then it's more likely to get selected because of, you know, the fact that only the individuals who are leaving Migratory. that depleted mm. environment, yeah, and getting to a new place, um, even if it's nearby, right? They're they're going to have a, a selective advantage, and so you know, so it, it really it's not so much about overall the environment being depleted. It's more sort of about the patchiness of the resources. That like you know, if there are situations where it could be really bad, you know, in, in one little area and then very close by, it's it's good. And then you can start getting the evolution of these motile phenotypes, which then once you have them, has implications for sort of, you know, what's going to happen in the greater system of the body and over the longer term. So, so, so yeah, so the idea, you know, in this model that I made with some of my colleagues to explore this, we, you know, our, our conclusion is basically that you can get the evolution of dispersal, right, based on having sort of patchy resources and locally, you know, at least in a small environment, lower resources. And that this suggests that you almost kind of might have like the pre-evolution of these um, cellular abilities, these adaptations for movement and for conditional movement that appear in a sort of different way later with metastasis, um, you know, but that there may be a sort of continuity there in terms of how those abilities sort of start to evolve just in a in a local tumor environment before you see invasion, before you see things like metastasis. Yeah. Well, let's talk now about some potentially surprising or counterintuitive approaches for managing cancer that uh, maybe jump out of this more evolutionary understanding of what cancer is and why it exists and why why it gets worse over time. Um, I guess one thing that you talk about in the book is the possibility of not trying to kill a tumor, uh, but instead taking a, an approach like a more more subtle, like soft approach where you just try to manage its behavior. Yeah, can you explain um, that whole approach? Yeah, well, so... The approach I think you're referring to is adaptive therapy, which you know, is um, really kind of proposed and brought to the fore by Bob Gatenby from the Moffitt Cancer Center in Florida. And the main idea of this is that if you try to treat a cancer with high-dose therapy, um, with the approach of trying to eradicate it, you can inadvertently select for the cells that are most resistant to 
the therapy. So this is akin to, you know, what happens with um, the evolution of resistance to like pest control Mm. and um, antibiotics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you high doses um, and, you know, for a long time, you're actually applying the strongest possible selection pressure to favor the cells that are resistant, right? And all of the other cells will be dead. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the only cells that survive are the ones that can survive in the presence of the drug that you're trying to use to get rid of the tumor. And so then the question becomes, well, you know, well, what's the alternative then? You know, like, you know, and and if you accept that, for certain kinds of tumors, at least, um, especially if they're advanced, right, um, and are likely genetically diverse, they probably already have mu- resistance mutations, then you kind of have to, for a certain class, I'm not going to say for all tumors, because there's some where, yes, you can get rid of them yeah. with standard chemotherapy. But there are certain classes of tumors for which the sort of logical approach is to look at it and say, okay, it's unlikely that this could be eradicated with high-dose therapy. So we have to sort of take as given that this tumor is going to stick around. So what kind of tumor do we want to cultivate, Mm. right? And, you know, what you want is a tumor that's going to respond when you treat it, right? That's going to be controllable, that's going to not become invasive and metastatic, one that's, you know, not going to disrupt the life of the person who harbors it as much, right? So you can then approach it from this perspective of like, well, okay, given that it's going to stick around, what are the priorities? And so the approach of adaptive therapy is really that, you know, you, you start by giving a dose of the drug to kind of get the tumor to a smaller size so that it's a little bit more manageable. And then you only treat it when it's growing. And when it's not growing, you let it be. And the idea here is that there's usually a cost to resistance to drugs because it, you know, it takes energy for cells to pump out drugs from the cell or, or, you know, do other things that, you know, can confer resistance. So that means that when you're not applying the drug, the cells that are sensitive to the treatment are going to be um, more likely. Yeah, they're going they're going to have an advantage over the cells that are resistant. And so, you know, you, you kind of manage the drug or manage the tumor by treating it when it's growing too much, and then you back off. So then, you know, you can get more of the sensitive cells there, and and you know, patients are able to live for much longer than expected. Um, with these kinds of treatments when, you know, in the clinical trials that have been done. it's There's ongoing work, you know, there's a lot more work to be done, but the clinical trials that have been done are really promising, you know, even with late stage cancer. Yeah. So one thing that happens, so so you, you use you use some chemo, you get the tumor to, to shrink somewhat, uh, and then you wait until it starts growing again. And then I guess you've got the evolution of some more pro-growth uh, cells inside it. Uh, and then you treat it again. And I suppose the cells that are growing, proliferating more quickly, they're probably more vulnerable to the chemo because they're kind of there, they're at their like metabolic limits trying to trying to grow. And so they get disproportionately killed. And so what you're left with again is the less grow, less, less pro-growth cells in the tumor. And then you hope that that will then they're just gonna lie low for a little bit <laughs> while you don't use the chemo. Yeah, that's that's another one of the, you know, hypotheses that I have about what what's going on with adaptive therapy. That, you know, it might not just be about allowing sensitive cells to 
grow back, but also that, you know, every time you treat a tumor conditional on it growing, you're going to be, you know, essentially able to target those cells that grow more because not only will there be more of them, but they're going to be more vulnerable because they're in in that state of, yeah, yeah. dividing and, uh, you know, doing that life history trade-off of uh, yeah. investing in the, you know, reproduction over the survival. So, so yeah, it's, um, there are a lot of potential mechanisms that, that could be underlying that. Is adaptive therapy getting applied in more more places now? Like try it on a larger scale, I suppose. Uh, and I imagine it was initially trialed in cancer situations where that were most promising for it, where the existing more aggressive treatment wasn't working very well. And so people are looking for alternatives. I wonder, yeah, are people trying it in a wider range of situations uh, now as well? Yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of efforts now to, you know, start clinical trials with adaptive therapy. Um, a lot of that has happened at the Moffitt Cancer Center, where Bob Gatenby is, and you know, he's developed a lot of collaborations there. We have some efforts going on here as well to test adaptive therapy in some mouse models, but also, you know, trying to actually start some clinical trials with breast cancer patients. But, you know, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of, like, economic interests in the private sector that are aligned with adaptive therapy mm. because, you know, there's not... Can't patent the idea of giving someone less medicine. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's an algorithm, right, for treatment. It can be used with any drug or approach, really. I mean, you have to sort of figure out how to, how to use it, but the it's an idea, you know, yeah. it's a, that can be computationally instantiated and might be a little different, you know, in different systems. So, it, you know, it really relies on having funding from, you know, NIH, agencies, so. yeah, NIH and, and, well, actually NCI, National Cancer okay. Institute, which it's, you know, within there. But, it, you know, there's a, I mean, there is, there is funding that is happening. There are, you know, clinical trials going on, but it's, uh, there need to be more, you know, and there we need to think about, you know, how can we facilitate these kinds of approaches that frankly are, they're cheaper, they're easier on patients, and they're probably, I mean, not probably, they're definitely a lot more exportable to countries where really expensive chemo, you know, with intense monitoring and testing and all of that isn't as much of an option. Um, so I think there's a real, real opportunity to think about how we can take these sorts of approaches to bring at least, you know, some management of cancer to places where um, expensive methods and drugs are just not an option. Yeah. Yeah, some other evolution-inspired treatment ideas that you talk about in the book. uh, One is to give uh, kind of a local tumor a constant supply of food (laughs) and resources with the kind of aforementioned logic that if the tumor is, if the cells that are doing best are the ones that stay put in a particular given location, then you're not selecting for ones that are that are likely to move. Um, That that one sounds a little bit crazy to me because it also feels like you're still feeding the tumor, you're still feeding the cancer. It seems like it's always going to be a double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's obviously something that, you know, like there are caveats there, right? Like maybe you would want to be feeding it and then treating it with adaptive therapy, for mm-hmm. example, right? Yeah. But if you're if you're feeding it, then you're reducing the selection pressures on the cells to disperse, right. which if you're trying to prevent the evolution of invasion and metastasis could be a good strategy. So yeah, you know, if you start applying these ideas from 
ecology, like dispersal theory, and, you know, uh, theories like life history theory and, um, you know, thinking about how do we affect the parameters of natural selection. You know, you think of all of these things, it opens up this creative space for thinking about new strategies for controlling cancer and then, you know, potentially combining them in ways that allow you to prevent the things that you don't want and cultivate the things that you do want. I mean, yeah. So, but, but it is really, it really is, it's a mental shift to thinking, okay, well, how do we live with cancer? You know, and, and I think cross-species perspective is useful, not just because we can learn things from other species about how, you know, they suppress cancer um, or, you know, deal with it, but also because it, I think forces us to just think more broadly about the fact that living with cancer is the norm for multicellular life. And so, you know, if we can be more deliberate about using our our technology and our abilities to, you know, gather information, process it ourselves, right? Um, then that opens up a whole new space for treating and preventing cancer differently that that leverages, you know, the brains that we have here yeah, and the yeah. network brains that we all have, you know, and, and all of the like really rich theory that's been developed in evolutionary biology and ecology, you know, over, you know, the decades, <laughs> centuries. So, yeah. yeah. Another one you mentioned is um, using kind of chemicals uh, that might disrupt the signaling uh, and the ability of these cancer cells to cooperate and collaborate with with one another, which which, which makes intuitive sense. Uh, another one that, that I was amazed by is obviously it would be helpful if we could reduce the rate of evolution among the cancer cells. And one way to do that would be to reduce the rate of mutation, the ongoing rate of mutation within these cells so they can't change as quickly. I think you were suggesting that was it aspirin or um, NSAIDs, you know, a, a Panadol, uh, yeah, Paracetamol, like a Acetaminophen, baby aspirin, yeah. that, that they could really reduce the rate of genetic mutations within cancer cells. Um, it's just, it was, I, I remember the amount, it seemed like it had a large effect and like a crazily large effect. Yeah. Um, so there, I think there's been some um, newer studies on this too that, you know, I think maybe challenged just how large that effect was. But the original studies that were done basically looked like, you know, people who were taking these you know, NSAIDs had lower likelihood of progressing from this um, early cancer-like state called Barrett's esophagus, where, you know, you have sort of what's called dysplasia, where, you know, cells are in the wrong places um, and growing, you know, in ways that they shouldn't in the esophagus, um, lower likelihood of progressing to cancer. And that seemed to be related to a, you know, decrease in mutation rate that was associated with it and said, so, you know, it, it may be that, you know, because of sort of evolutionary mismatch, we have just higher inflammation than is ideal um, because of, you know, toxins or, you know, exposures to more pathogens, you know, th- things like that, that could be kind of kicking our body into a, you know, a state of inflammation. Because, you know, inflammation is another situation where, you know, there's trade-offs, right? It's like you have higher inflammation. Yeah, maybe it's less likely that you'll have a, you know, acute problem with the pathogen, but you're creating an environment that's, you know, potentially more pro-cancer because it's basically being more permissive of, of cells doing things that, yeah, could. They wouldn't do in maintenance. um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Cool. Okay, let's let's push on from cancer a little bit and think about other other levels of uh, cooperation on this show. Because we're, we're not not a medical show, probably closer to being a social sciences show. We're maybe more interested usually in cooperation between people and cooperation between countries and societies and so on. So yeah, I'm kind of curious to explore whether uh, we could use any of the ideas and frameworks that we've been using to discuss cancer to think about cooperation between between people. This could be a slightly futile effort. I haven't writing these questions. I wasn't always fully on board with mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, with, with, with the ideas that I was putting down. But I'm to see your, your take on them. So there's one thing I should say up front is that here we are going to be drawing uh, analogies between behavior of people, cheating behavior of people and cheating behavior of cells, which in this case means cancer. Uh, so we will in some sense be drawing an analogy between the behavior of people and cancer, which uh, is slightly, I, I don't know, it seems like a little bit offensive. Uh, just, I think if you ever called some individual uh, cancerous, that might be a little bit offensive. But we're here at the ideas level, we're thinking at a uh, level of abstraction of cheating and cooperation and so on. So uh, hopefully uh, listeners will, will let us get away with that. Yeah, what are some ways in which humans defecting against organizations or groups of friends or their societies can be structurally similar to cells in the body forming cancer and not cooperating with one another. Yeah, I, I mean, there there's some parallels and then there's also some, you know, places where the analogy, you could say, breaks down. Um, so I like to kind of think about it in terms of, you know, what are the components of multicellular cooperation that break down in cancer? And then we can ask, you know, are there parallels to that in, you know, what happens in, in human societies? And so if, if we take like the, you know, regulation of, you know, cell proliferation, there are, you know, human societies in which people do regulate how many offspring other people can have, right? So we see that now. Do we think that that's a good thing or a bad thing? That's an ethical question. Um, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, cooperation and, you know, also, you know, on some level, I guess it can be interpreted that way. It could also be interpreted as like, you know, authoritarian control. That's not Mm. cool. Right. So like there's like already we're kind of in like, oh, the body is like a fascist state. Right. Like if you start (laughs) like making, you know, these these analogies are like, okay, like we're on touchy ground already here. I'm worried. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You're right. The body is a very authoritarian place. Uh, Mm -hmm. Cells that step out of line get shot. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, no questions asked, you know, I mean, yes and no, right? I mean, there's like, it, it, there is some, there is some cost, right? To like, uh, you know, just killing a cell like that. So, so, you know, you do have um, mechanisms to try to do the DNA repair and, you know, make sure that like, if it's easy to solve the problem, you know, the cell doesn't get completely destroyed, but cells don't have a lot of autonomy. Mm. And, you know, that's a good thing for the function of us as a unit. But, you know, if you take really Not seriously... Not for every cell. <laughs> yeah, if you take seriously the perspective of the cell, and it's, you know, it's a different story. Um, if you'll permit me a slight digression. Sure. Um, so I worked on a song, a rap with Baba Brinkman. <laughs> yeah. um, early, early on when I was just starting to, you know, really kind of bring these ideas together about cooperation theory and, and cancer, where, uh, you know, basically the, the idea was like, how, how can we like write a rap about cancer from an evolutionary perspective and, you know, the, the cooperation theory perspective. And, and what he ended up doing was taking the perspective of a cancer cell um, that is not happy with being stuck in this body and having to do all of the things that are, you know, required. And um, it was a really great way, you know, for me to, to really shift 
my perspective. Um, and it's also just really fun. So, um, you know, it's called Revenge of the Somatic. If you, you know, want to look it up, it like starts, you know, my forefathers were free, but I was born a slave. I right. keep the memory of freedom in my DNA, right? So it's like, okay, like we're setting up a, you know, totally, totally different frame yeah. um, for thinking about it. But it, it really does draw that parallel between, you know, what's going on in the cellular societies of the body um, and some of these things that, you know, we think about on a, on a social level. So, yeah. So anyway, so that's my like big digression. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, but we can bring it back to like these, you know, foundations of multicellularity. We can think about, okay, is there an analogy for, um, you know, cellular suicide and, you know, for forced cell death? And it's like, well, you know, mm, you know, there's analogies, but like, that's not something that happens a lot, I think, in modern society. Although, you know, there's some situations where like, if people are being forced to do something that they think is going to damage their their families, their countries, right, that, you know, they will swallow the pill to get themselves out of the system so that they don't mm. end up doing something damaging, right? So I think at the very extreme case, you can maybe see some examples of this, but mostly that, you know, those kinds of processes aren't really going on, I think, in, in human societies. Yeah. But division of labor, we see a lot of that you know, resource distribution, you know, reallocation of resources, moving things around so they can get from one place to another. We see that. Um, we see also, you know, maintenance of the shared environment, right? Like that's, you know, we yeah. have, you know, in our cities, we have our trash collection. We have, you know, um, lots of efforts that people do to um, take care of the environment that we share. So I think that there are there are a lot of parallels. Um, and then there's some interesting discontinuities that, you know, I think it can be informative to think about those and, and talk about those in terms of, well, wh why do they not happen in exactly the same way? How much of that has to do with the levels of selection, right? Mm. Like our bodies have been selected on this level of all the 30 trillion cells, like doing a thing together to help us survive and reproduce while, you know, in humans, Arguably, there's been a lot less selection on collective phenotypes. So I think, yeah, there's, yeah. And then there's also, you know, in humans, there's a whole other set of processes that have to do with culture and institutions. And, mm, you know, yeah. yes, we have set those up Our, you know, they've come from us in a way to like then allow us to regulate ourselves in collectives. But, you know, they're not necessarily going to have the same, you know, structures and, and functions exactly as the, you know, systems that have evolved um, through natural selection to regulate a multicellular body. So, so yeah, so there's a, there's a lot more that we, I mean, we could probably talk about just this for <laughs> an hour, but. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I guess, I mean, so one of the, one of the differences that has become immediately apparent is that we care about the interests and well-being of individual people in a way where we don't normally care about the interests of individual cells, uh, because I guess we don't think that they're more patients. And so that, that makes the, uh, the issue potentially very different. But I guess, yeah, there is, I suppose you had this analogy of the the rubbish housemate uh, who's kind mm -hmm. of like a, a cancer cell. So, so they come in and then they eat all of your food <laughs> and they don't buy it. They don't buy any groceries. <laughs> and then they just leave their trash lying about everywhere. They're not taking care of the extracellular environment. And then I suppose in the, 
in the cancer analogy, what happens is that they then immediately have children. So that next, so the next day you've got two rubbish housemates and then you've got four of them and then eight of them and 16 of them. That doesn't really happen with, yeah. with, with people on the same scale. You don't get replication um, in, the, in the same way. I suppose you could think about maybe like bad ideas or bad behaviors spreading through people, through ideas. Mm. So maybe that would, that would be more of a, a, an analogy where maybe you could have a society undermined by the spreading of the idea that we shouldn't pay taxes or shouldn't cooperate or uh, shouldn't contribute to society. Um, oh, that could never happen. No. <laughs> we could never, we could never have like society break down because of bad information. <laughs> uh, fortunately, yeah, we're completely robust against that. Um, I suppose. I mean, other differences are that people learn through reasoning and can anticipate ahead the effects of their actions um, in a way where evolution doesn't plan ahead and cells can't process information in the in the, in the same way. Um, so maybe that maybe that does make it really quite different. Yeah, I mean. There, there's certainly the the ability to think ahead and and plan ahead changes the sort of decision making process. But you know, also if you have evolution happening over and over again, or you have evolution happening, you know, in multiple clusters of cancer cells that are you know little collectives, and it's happening twenty five times, you know, in parallel. So you can get variation and and selection acting in ways that can look kind of like things like, you know, learning and anticipation, even though that's not actually what's going on. Yeah. So yeah, you can have different mechanisms leading to sometimes, you know, the the same kinds of structures and um, and behaviors, which which is also which is also interesting. Yeah. Analogy I was curious to explore is um so, so we had this very fundamental constant tension between um the need to crack down on like proto-cancers uh, and also the need that sometimes you do need cells to move and grow and, and, and so on. Uh, and I guess you can imagine that within society, there's also this tension always existing between needing to be open to new practices and new ideas and deviation from existing rules with at the same time not wanting it, the existing order to to break down in ways that uh, when it actually is valuable and, 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 the rules, and the rules are good ones. And so we, we do this, I think we see this in, I guess, this idea of like closed versus open societies where some societies just allow individuals to do what they want to a greater degree. So you're like getting some of the benefits from that. I guess they're like living in a fast life history uh, style. And then there's other societies that are much more conservative where they really don't like deviation from existing practices and they're much more conservative about that because they're worried about where that might lead. Yeah. Does that analogy pour over in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely um, some some parallels there. And if we kind of go back to this idea that, you know, the body really is a sort of, you know, fascist state that doesn't let cells like do anything. Um, I mean, to me, that would be like a personal hell because like I right. love, you know, thinking about things differently, being creative, you know, asking like, well, why do we have this rule? Like, I mean, to me, that is, that's really important. And, you know, and, and sometimes it's actually important for cooperation in human societies, to be willing to challenge the systems, to be willing to break rules that might be things that people are accepting that might not be ethical, that might not be the right way of organizing things um, for the well-being of society. So I think, um, you know, it isn't the case that cheating is always bad. If we define right. cheating as, you know, breaking shared rules that uh, have some fitness consequences for the individuals within them. I mean, if, you know, if cheating is always about like, you know, you have a group that's like really agreed, hey, we're going to go in on this together and follow these rules and you have, you know, breaking of those rules. And then, yeah, you can say there's like cheating exploitation going on. But, you know, sometimes people are born into systems that they never agreed 
to the rules of, or sometimes, you know, rules are put in place to exploit people, right? So I think that, you know, it's, it gets interesting, you know, when we start um, really interrogating these ideas of like, you know, what does it mean to cheat, to be a cheater? Um, And, uh, you know, and sometimes, you know, we do need to challenge the systems that we're in and, um, and push them a little bit or even straight up cheat in the rules so that we don't have, you know, people getting exploited. So I think it's, uh, it's important to, to not just be like, oh yeah, we should just not have any rule breaking and, (laughs) you know, the world would be so much better if everybody always just, you know, did the the thing that is expected of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I suppose that the interesting thing is that so every time you have a new generation of a, a new human, then they're born with a slightly rejigged genome that now has a new agreement between the cells, a new set of rules that they might follow that might allow you know some cells to grow a little bit more and like change the body shape in this way or that. Um, might be a bit more permissive to some types of cells in some situations and not others. Because the thing is, there's like billions of humans, and I guess in the past there was millions of humans. So there was a lot of innovation constantly with that. The thing is that we don't have so many societies, especially now. The number of like group societies with different cultures and different rules has now shrunk massively uh, because we're all in such great communication with one another. So, so I guess we, we have to allow them to change quite a bit. Otherwise, we really would be incredibly stagnant because there's not room for experimentation among small groups anymore. <laughs> does, mm. that, does that make any sense? Yeah, I, I mean, I think like there's there's different ways to sort of think about the units here, right? So you could think about societies as sort of, okay, you have everyone who feels like they're part of the same culture. They feel, you know, they're shared norms and, you know, ideas and approaches. Um, but but you could also think, you know, a little bit more maybe loosely about what constitutes a group where you could have creativity, right? So you could have companies or even teams within companies or, you know, um, groups at universities that are looking at certain questions in certain ways. So I think, you know, the the unit of analysis um, is maybe a little bit flexible in a way that hopefully allows for the kinds of, you know, good innovation and good challenging to norms that does need to happen, um, mm. especially when you're when you're in a system that might not itself be generating that innovation, right? Like if you're in a bureaucracy, it's like how yeah. do you how do you do things in a new way? Well, maybe you could do things in a new way by suggesting more bureaucracy. But um, other than that, <laughs> right? Like, um, yeah. So, I guess, well, may, yeah. May, well, maybe maybe the analogy between yeah, you know, the innovation that you get from sexual reproduction, where the genome is substantially changed each generation, might be that we start new firms, we start new companies, charities, uh, you know, social groups, and they can mm-hmm. each have somewhat different social norms, somewhat different rules for what is cheating and not cheating than what came before, and then the one that flourish and achieve people's goals, then those those practices might spread. Uh, so that's kind mm-hmm. of a cultural evolution analogy. Yeah. Is there an interpersonal analogy to the strategy of not treating cancer so aggressively uh, so that you can try to create a more boring static tumor? Is there any way that we could apply that to fighting crime or antisocial behavior? Or marriages? Marriage, okay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yes, we could certainly apply these analogies, right, to thinking about like, you know, how do you, instead of sort of approaching things that we see as problematic as like, oh, the thing to do is eradicate them. Instead, we could ask, well, you know, how do we live with something that maybe isn't ideal and, and accept that maybe it won't be 
perfect. Maybe, you know, there'll be some exploitation going on, but it won't be to the point that it's devastating, you know, or how can you cultivate relationship to the point where, you know, you're able to to live with each other? Um, you know, maybe they're not always doing the dishes, but at least they're not exploiting you on a, on a, on a large scale or something, right? So it's yeah. like, what can you live with and what can you not? Uh, I think, you know, in terms of crime, there are, uh, there's a lot of really important work going on right now in terms of looking at restorative justice as a strategy for dealing with situations where people are, you know, imposing costs on one another or, you know, violating rules. And, you know, rather than focusing on sort of punishment or putting somebody away, you know, forever or even death penalty, right? Like mm. instead of those catastrophic kinds of, you know, ways of dealing with it, which actually can undermine a lot of the connections in a society, um, you know, restorative justice is really about, well, okay, how do you write the wrongs to the extent that you can? And how do you keep that individual as a part of the society? And, you know, do the damage control to the extent that you can, but then, you know, try to actually cultivate something out of that that's positive. So um, I think, you know, when we talk about human societies, there's, you know, there's analogies, but it can go even further than just, you know, analogies, because I think there are, you know, if we look at small scale societies, there are a lot of situations where, you know, restorative justice does work to actually reintegrate people and rebuild social relationships um, in situations where if you were just using punishment, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Another uh, analogy that just occurred to me is, uh, so I've heard this story from kind of a theory of, um, fighting crime. I think when you get to a point where gangs are at a particular level of power, especially if they have massive funding, often through the through the drug trade, it becomes impractical for the police to errat, like even hope or dream of eradicating these organizations. They, they simply are not going to be resourced at all to do that. And often what they do in that case is reach an agreement with the gangs where they're like, okay, these are the these are the things that you can do that we can tolerate. Like we can we can mm-hmm. live with the drug trade and we can live with you running underground casinos or something. But if you kill one another or if you start like creating violent problems on the streets, then that is what we'll crack down on. Mm-hmm. And so a- a- any gang that just does these other peaceful things, um, we will largely leave you alone. But anyone that falls out of line and breaks these other rules, then those are the rules that we're going to actually try to defend because that's what we care about much more. And so they reach this kind of compromise. That actually does seem structurally quite similar to the to the chemotherapy case. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and you potentially, I guess you could even like shift the culture within the gang over time towards uh, the people who will flourish are the ones who are able to live within those those more narrow rules. Mm-hmm. What, what about with what about with memes? Can you have um cancerous cheating memes <laughs> like ideas spreading between people? Is does does that make any sense? I, I so there's one level on which it makes sense, and another level I think on which it it doesn't quite. So like the idea that you know memes could be like exploiting our our brains and our information systems to spread themselves because the ones that you know are good at spreading spread like a hundred percent right like there's certainly exploitation going on but to call them cheating like there has to be some entity Mm. that they're cheating on and you know yeah like what are the rules that they're breaking of what collective system that they're a part of so so i would say that you know yeah they can exploit us but maybe they're more like you know viruses or pathogens um where they're they're not necessarily breaking a set of pre-existing rules, you know, that come from inside, you know, the the system that they're within, but rather they're, you know, just little sneaky things that can find the, you know, vulnerabilities and 
exploit them. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing here, right? Like they're not like actually sneaky and looking, but they act as if they are because the ones that do it are the ones they, that proliferate. They're around, so. yeah. So I guess, I guess yeah. if you had an idea that wasn't helpful to the person who hears it, say it's either false or just useless, but um, it's the kind of idea that people really love to repeat a lot to other people and so they spread it, then I guess that is kind of, well, it's, it's like a virus of, a, yeah. of an idea. Yeah, yeah, it's like a virus of an idea, right? And I wonder what they would look like. Uh, uh, we, we might uh, like unpleasant urban legends those. or uh, like <gasps> fake facts. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there are a lot of ideas that aren't necessarily good for the survival or the reproduction of the individual who you know possesses them. Like you know, they're they're cults, right? That advocate for things like you know suicide that advocate for not having children, right? Like things that are at odds with the survival and reproduction of the the organism that, you know, harbors them. But in certain kinds of conditions, um, those memes can take hold and also spread within a population. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay. Let's turn that to cooperation on different scales again. I guess zooming out further, if you had if you know humans as a species were kind of damaging the natural environment in a way that made it harder for humanity to survive in future would that kind of be like a cancerous behavior in a in a sense because we're destroying the like extracellular matrix where we're making it hard for us to survive uh, and you might think well it's like a it's a behavior that's then going to undermine this like meta organism of the entire species yeah, I mean, if if you want to kind of like look at our whole species as an entity or kind of go a little Gaia and be yeah. like, hey, you know, our Earth, right? It's like we're, we're all like one one big system or we're, you know, a unit on some level. Like if you do zoom out, right? And if you accept that it's reasonably likely that there may be other life out there in the universe that is, you know, also existing on planets where there are resources and using them, um, then you know, there's a certain level on which, you know, yeah, you can think of all of us as part of a unit that, you know, is probably the the right level of analysis is the, you know, planet is, the, you know, Gaia, even though like, I know like there's, there's sort of been a lot of um, poo-pooing of the idea of Gaia and <laughs> evolutionary biology. Yeah. Um, but, but there's a certain level on which it does make sense um, if you zoom out far enough. Um, and also if you think about sort of the interdependence of systems on Earth, um, you know, that there, there is some level, I think, on which it, it, it's at least a reasonable tool to use mm. to think about some of these things. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, there, I, I think there are absolutely ways that we could think about, you know, our behavior vis-a-vis the limited, you know, resources that are on our planet as um, having some analogies with some of the processes that go on um, with cancer and, you know, efforts to try to, you know, increase sustainability and, you know, make sure that we're living in a way that will be will make it more likely that future generations will, you know, have have a decent chance of a good life. I think, you know, all of those are are questions that have some analogies with sort of short-sightedness that can happen um, with cancer inside the body. Yeah. The funny thing is, so yeah, that idea of um, us, like uh, humans engaging in this cancerous behavior, it sounds a little bit cuckoo if you th- think that 
humans are the only living thing in the universe. I think, however, if the universe were teeming with life, such that there was life originating on many different planets, and from some planets it spread because, you know, the, the organisms there cooperated together in order to make a flourishing place. And in other places, life went extinct because the societies went to war and they couldn't collaborate and they died out. Uh, and then, of course, the cooperative ones spread to other planets and they, they end up taking over the galaxy. Then I think the analogy would hold very clearly you would basically, uh, I don't know, you're slightly smiling, so maybe you think it wouldn't hold quite so clearly. But but the idea of this, like, then cooperation, uncooperation, the, the like, uncooperative thing dies out, or, or like, it, the long-term kills off the organism that it's a part of, the, or the entity in which the cooperativeness is represented. And then it's a bit funny that it, that we think it's crazy for us to think about Earth this way, just because there doesn't happen to be that much life out in <laughs> on other planets, as yeah. far as we can tell. Yeah. Well, I'm smiling for a few reasons. One is because, like, I love, I love talking and thinking about, like, extraterrestrial life and, you know, the, the like, possibility that, um, the, the things that are going on elsewhere in the universe, um, you know, like, can, like they can provide a frame for thinking about what's going on here that's just so different. So I, I, I'm smiling because I love that. Yeah. And also because, um, you know, another way of thinking about like spacefaring, you know, intelligent life is that, you know, maybe um, there's a certain way in which it's more like a transmissible cancer that's like, you know, really good at like cooperating to like extract the resources and then go far, um, even, you know, beyond the body or the um, the planet and find another extant, um, you know, life form to, wow, to colonize. Okay. So, Do you think yeah. that of humanity would then be a kind of transmissible cancer that started on this planet and then is going to spread to other planets and use other resources there? <laughs> I, I, I mean, you know, we're kind of off the deep end, sure, but no, it's I fun, love it. right? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, but in all seriousness, yeah. though, right, like the ability to be an intelligent life form that can get into into space like right it's going to require some level of cooperation so you do have you know sort of a a filter there and you know i know in like the sort of great filter hypothesis idea there actually isn't very much about cooperation and i think Mm -hmm. you know like it's not just being technological but um you know having the ability to cooperate is is key to avoid destroying ourselves yeah yeah to the point of you know yeah we could destroy ourselves um you know humans also oftentimes use cooperation for like really sinister ends right so like cooperation isn't in itself good it's all a question of you know what is that cooperation used for and you know that so it's all to say I'm not I'm not saying that like it's inherently bad to go into space because we can make like a transmissible <laughs> cancer analogy but I I think we you know we do have to ask well what you know what is the you know what are the goals what you know and uh if we do figure out how to be interplanetary species like is that the direction that is going to help life thrive the most? Um, you know, our life, uh, life in the universe, you know, anyway, so many open questions. I feel like this is a whole, it is a whole different episode <laughs> yeah, right, right. that we're having right now. Think, we're just, <laughs> Phyllis is so annoyed. I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to ground this a, lo- a little bit more. So all right, I all think, right. <laughs> yeah, the analogy to cancer, I'm not sure I always, always how helpful that is, but I think what we do see in the universe repeated at different scales is, cooperation between different elements to achieve common goals and and they coordinate and follow a set of rules that creates a surplus that allows them to succeed that surplus can then potentially be grabbed by subcomponents that uh, decide to deviate from the rules that created that that surplus and I don't think you just see this kind of recapitulated in different ways and it, and it makes sense theoretically it makes sense structurally 
Um, yeah. <laughs> Does that sound right? I like that. Yeah. 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 It's a very, very um, succinct explanation of a very complicated process. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess on that topic of kind of many different well, different ways that uh, uncooperativeness can arise in structures at different kinds of scales, I guess one thing that could potentially change that in future is the ability for intelligent beings to prevent themselves from drifting and, and changing over time uh, in a way that kind of creates the variance that might permit, I guess, deviation between the interests of uh, different components of, the, of, the, of this system. To, to be more specific, I'm thinking... If you had artificial intelligent systems that were, you know, as capable as humans to say, or like substantially more capable, and they could copy themselves perfectly. And and like with, you know, when you copy files on a computer, the computer can just check that it's all been copied identically and that there's no, there's no mutations in, uh, certainly no, no, no changes anywhere near at the rate that you get uh, genetic changes uh, as, as humans reproduce. In that case... Could this kind of flawless error detection be the first sort of self-replicating life that potentially avoids the phenomenon of being undermined by uncooperative subcomponents that deviate in their interests from the from the interests of the original agent? Mm, so sort of kind of doing a, a thought experiment here that like if you yeah. could have totally perfect replication, never have errors, then could you sort of get systems that would evolve to like be able to maintain cooperation forever. Right. And I'm going to answer maybe because even without mutation, there could still be, you know, other factors that could move. So I'm I'm thinking of this on like the cellular level, right? Like you can have epigenetic changes, right? So if you go into an expression state or like you're thinking about artificial life, if you go into some sort of aspect of like the, you know, running of the processes that maybe isn't exactly appropriate for the context because maybe the inputs got mixed up or maybe it went into an environment that was weird, um, then it could actually be, you know, in an expression state that's not appropriate for what would be most beneficial for the organism or the higher level entity. And and also, you know, in order to even kind of know what is going to be the best thing at the organism level, there has to be a history of selection for those things that allow the the entity to optimize for that organism level. And if you have a rapidly changing environment, then it actually, it's not possible to anticipate every, you know, situation and what would be optimal for the higher level entity in that case. So yeah, if we could completely eliminate errors of copying that would reduce the sort of, you know, problem that comes from mutations or alterations um, to the sort of underlying code that, you know, cheating to arise but there's still other ways in to get things that aren't actually functional at the organism level. And, you know, and if they're benefiting the entity itself, that's like in the weird expression state or whatever, then you can get the propagation of, you know, those, those things that are not ideal for the, the higher level. Yeah. I guess, is that another way of saying that? Uh, I suppose if if you have an AI system that keeps kind of duplicating uh, or keeps copying its original version in order to go and complete other tasks elsewhere, presumably those new agents are going to encounter new situations and they're going to try to learn and be altered by the environment as they're going about their work. And then even if kind of the original code or the original goals haven't 
changed, at least not apparently, the brain is going to change. Uh, the kind of the neural network is going to adapt to the environment and and be, be shifting, and that could cause at least like some some slippage in goals because you just. Oh, I guess at least with current AI technology, um, we wouldn't really know how to ensure that the goals are preserved because it's just this incredibly complicated mess, <laughs> a little bit like the brain. So you start learning one thing and then you don't know necessarily what consequences it might have elsewhere. Yeah, that, that's one way to to think about it. And I would just add to that that, you know, information has to be processed at so many levels for anything to be able to happen. And And, you know, thinking about this at the cellular level, like, to me, it really, it makes it much easier to, in a way easier, but harder to like wrap my head around, like how much information processing needs to happen. And so even just the idea that, you know, we can say, okay, we're giving this AI, you know, a goal to, you know, do a specific thing, like in order for that AI to accomplish that goal, it needs to be able to you know, process and respond to really complex environment, right? Like you, you could say, oh, a cell, like it has the goal of maximizing the survival and reproduction of the organism that it's a part of and the inclusive fitness and interdependence of whatever, right? Like you could say, okay, that like, that's the goal that each cell in our body has on some level, but you can't just expect the cell to know how to do that, right? It has all of these rules encoded into its genome um, and then it's interacting with all these other cells um, in ways that lead to sort of the emergence of the pursuit of those goals at the higher right. level. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's a lot harder to be goal-directed than we think because that's so easy for us like we're we're so used to operating that way and projecting goals onto other entities in order to kind of make sense of their behavior because it's a really good heuristic but that's what it is it's a heuristic for what is underlying you know the, the underlying mechanisms are so complex that we can't even wrap our brains around them yeah speaking of cells i guess uh we've mostly been talking about um cheating and uh, defection between cells. Uh, but we, we should talk for a minute about, yeah, uh, ways that you can get cheating uh, within cells, uh, which sounds a little bit crazy because it's already like a, a single cell is such a small scale. How can you have subcomponents of a cell fighting against one another? But it turns out that you that you totally can. Um, yeah, can, can you explain how it is that you can get kind of genes cheating uh, against other genes that are on the same strand of DNA that are on the same, on the same chromosome? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, to me, this is all kind of an extension of our their earlier conversation about the evolution of life and multicellularity. And it's just, it's just kind of taking it back a few steps. So, you know, like very, very early on in the evolution of life, there, you know, there wasn't anything like a genome, like a bunch of, you know, DNA that is teaming up to replicate itself together with all the machinery to replicate and all of that. You had mm. probably something that was much more, RNA-like. So, you know, you had basically just these, you know, molecules that were able to replicate themselves in one way or another. And once you start sort of having situations where these entities that are replicating can do so more effectively in a cluster then they will stick together. And then maybe, you know, machinery then evolves that 
allows them to replicate together. Now, you can imagine, though, early on in the evolution of that, if you had a cheater, right, that was actually replicating itself more than the others, that that cheater could then, you know, be overrepresented in the next generation. And this is, you know, very, very likely what was going on in the evolution of, you know, proto-life, I guess we could call it, or maybe it's life if you think, you know, self-replicating entities are life. Yeah. So the very design of like how how our DNA works, how it replicates, there's actually like all of these cheater suppression mechanisms already built in. And that's the only reason that it works is because there is a suppression of all of these sort of, you know, gene level cheaters. Yeah. So so when we see fragments of DNA that overreplicate or jump into new chromosomes and, you know, replicate themselves in there, rather than seeing something like weird and really unusual, we're just seeing the like uncovering of the like fundamental Tensions that were already there. Yeah, yeah, um that that were sort of overcome in what's called like the these are called like the major transitions in um in evolution, these like times when Previously independent entities kind of came together to form higher level entities, which then allowed for more complexity and then yet higher level entities. So sort of coming together, regulating genes into a genome, having some cheater detection suppression response mechanisms at that level really is, yeah, it's one of the steps in kind of getting, you know, complex multicellular life, at least on this planet. Yeah. So so there's a stylized uh, illustration of what might have been going on is you've got lots and lots of different strands of DNA, lots of different genes in this kind of soupy mixture. And they're like, we could do better if we all stick together, if we all get on one big, uh, one, one very long strand of DNA so that we're all there uh, and, and we can, we're always available to use these genes if that's going to be useful for replicating ourselves. But every time the organism wants to replicate, each of the genes is like, no, copy me a little bit more. Like, Why don't make more copies of me? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, I would rather become a larger and larger fraction of the of the genome, I guess, at least until the point where that causes the thing to become completely non-functional, and then right. the the cell is dying completely. That that would set some limits pretty quickly. Right, that would set some limits. But yeah, and that's where we get into multi-level selection again, too, right? Because you know you had presumably little clusters all over you know the place doing this um, over long periods of time, and those that were best at you know, forming together, at replicating together, at suppressing cheating were the ones that were more likely to create copies of themselves at that higher level. And so, yeah. so yeah, so multi-level selection is absolutely key for kind of understanding these major transitions in cooperation um, where you go from, you know, these lower level entities that are competing or just sort of facultatively cooperating, like in the right circumstances, to kind of being locked in that they can only replicate as a unit together. Yeah, what are the yeah, what are the mechanisms that stop cheating by individual genes that we develop? I, I suppose it's something like it's a system that would detect whether something has been copied too many times, whether the same kind of DNA is repeating too many times, and then it might snip it out in one of the cases. Yeah, you know, I'm not a geneticist and expert in in this, but I know that there are a lot of mechanisms by which you can get, you know, replication of of these of these genes in the same place. You can get them sort of jumping from genome to genome, and that you know, part of our sort of overall um, kind of monitoring 
of the genome that's happening, right? By like the genome itself is monitoring itself, that it's not just, you know, sort of errors in terms of like point mutations, but places where there's, you know, too many replicates, right? And because it's double stranded, when the DNA is, you know, lining back up, there would be like chunks that are weird if things, you know, have gotten replicated too much, mm. or um, there might be other other mechanisms that allow for the sort of, you know, compilers and detectors of the genome to, to get in there and, um, and sort of figure out what's going on again, figure out, um, and then, you know, clip things out if necessary or get rid of cells that might actually have so much sustain too much. Yeah. Jumping DNA in there that it's like, Oh, maybe we just lose this one. So, yeah. Okay, so I guess cells in the body do sometimes die because of these phenomena. That that's the last line of defense is that uh, if a cell has been a victim of cheating genes and it's like and the damage is too severe, then it just needs to kill itself in order to avoid damaging the organism more broadly. Yeah, that's right. Um, does this have anything to do with the kind of repetitive junk DNA? I, I guess I know it's it's not very politically correct to call it junk DNA. We're meant to we're meant to realize that it's very important and sophisticated, and we just don't understand uh, what it is. But I'm I'm not sure what is what it's called these days. But the kind of repetitive uh, non non gene uh, DNA is that maybe a result of genes copying themselves uh, all, all the time and creating these stretches? Yeah, yeah, it's likely that some of those mechanisms are at work now. Whether that is providing any specific benefits for those genes other than just they're replicating themselves and so they replicate more right it's sort of this just you know default of um you know the things that are good at replicating end up replicating more yeah but yeah i i think that there's um you know there there are a lot of open questions still about what exactly is going on with a lot of the the DNA that is, you know, are these many copies, right? Because sometimes you can actually have sort of differentiation of function that begins because you've had, you know, you have like two copies of a of a gene and then mm. you can actually have one do one thing and one specialize on the other. So there's, you know, potential functionalities that can come from that in the medium term. But, you know, they're also, I mean, we just, the fact is we don't understand still a lot about how we go from genotype to phenotype, especially with sort of all of the dynamism that comes from, you know, how epigenetics, how we're affected by our environment, how cells affect are affected by the cells around them. Um, it's really, really hard to drill down to like the time frame and the spatial scale that we would need to be looking at to like really understand what's going on, right? We We just don't have great tools yet for like getting so minuscule into, you know, what the function is, uh, or, or even just what they're doing, even if it's not like functional from an evolutionary perspective. So yeah. lots of open questions there that are, that are cool. So. so we've gone from cells cheating against the organisms that they're a part of to genes cheating against the genomes that they're a part of or the cells that they're a part of. Can we go any smaller <laughs> or have we hit kind of rock bottom here? <laughs> Can we talk about individual base pairs on a gene defecting against the gene that they're a part of? Or maybe does that does it just uh, not become practical for that to happen? Well, I mean, I think we can probably go all the way back to the origins of life and replication in general. Um, but we don't know exactly what those entities looked like. But, you know, once you start having anything that is a, a replicator, right, it, it, it's going to have some level of complexity, right? Even if, if you just think of like a replicator as something that um, can when, you know, it's out in the environment, maybe it attracts things that are similar to it, right? So you could have like 
a very, very simple molecule that's just like good at, you know, maybe it has three parts and each of those three parts can attract a thing that is the same as it. And then it has some mechanism for like letting that other thing go. And then that, you know, like a sort of self-catalyzing process. So, you know, at that level, even you could imagine that there could be variation among entities that are replicating or, you know, some are just not able to do that at all. So there could be very, very sort of mechanistic kind of cooperation that's just, oh, well, how do these things attach together in what configuration? And then how do the forces, you know, at the level of the physics, like work at that? Like, so there could be, you know, selection that's going on on things that we think about as like the sort of chemistry and and physics that are, you know, leading to maybe selection for cooperation, but also the possibility that like cheating is undermining it, but it would be cheating in a very primordial kind of sense. So, (laughs) yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're we're about to leave uh, biology and and all this kind of genetic stuff. Um, But before we do that, um, it would be, it would be really cool if you could explain this, this, I guess, quite dark aspect of how, I guess, like sexual organisms work, at least, which is that, um, yeah, can you explain how it is that um, the the genes that come from the father tend to encourage uh, offspring to uh, grab a lot of resources from the mother and the genes that come from the mother encourage the opposite. They encourage the baby, uh, like the offspring to consume as few resources as possible. Uh, Why is that? Oh, yeah. So genetic conflict. This is one of my favorite topics because it's just so (laughs) weird, right? When when it starts to manifest. So yes, it all kind of starts with the idea that we as sexually reproducing organisms are, um, we're not genetically identical to our parents or our offspring, right? If you're typically you're 50% related, right? To parents and and offspring. So if you have your mom and your dad, they each contributed 50% to who you are in terms of the the genes. And that means that you don't have 100% aligned interests with your kin. Now, evolutionary thinkers often sort of focus on like this idea of, you know, kin selection, kin-based altruism, like um, parental investment, right? So altruism, easy, easy to get altruism among kin. And yes, but you don't- Not 100%. Yeah, yeah. You don't actually have 100% aligned interests. And from the perspective of the genes that you inherit from your father, the mother's body and the mother's future capacity for reproduction is not really relevant unless they're a partnership for life and there's no other possibilities of the female having offspring with with other males. So you have a situation where it's in the best interests, evolutionarily speaking, of the genes from the father to extract more resources from the mother's body than what would be optimal for the mother, who is presumably trying in evolutionary terms to more like equalize investment over present and potential future offspring. Um, Maybe not 100% equal, but having a a distribution that is closer to equal. And this kind of makes sense on theoretical level, but the absolutely crazy thing is that this manifests in the way that genes are tagged. So the epigenetic tags that are on genes, depending on whether they come from the maternal side or the paternal side. And the genes that come from the paternal side are, they 
they tend to be expressing genes that increase the resource delivery to the fetus while the mother is pregnant. And the genes that are coming from the mother's side, they're basically tagged in a way that makes them interfere with the transfer of resources that the paternal genes have kind of turned up. Um, And similar things are going on with, you know, growth factors and, you know, other processes that have to do with um, the transfer of resources from the mother's body to the fetus. Now, all that being said, there is a huge range of sort of shared interests where it's like, yes, it's in the maternal interest to transfer these resources and it's in the fetus's overall interest and paternal interest to, you know, get those resources. So there doesn't have to be a serious conflict, but things can escalate into situations where there's serious conflict. And in fact, preeclampsia is a result of the escalation of genetic conflict where Essentially, the you know mother system is shutting down the resource transfer in terms of the um, structure of the blood vessels, and the fetal system is then upregulating signaling that increases the blood pressure, and then the mother system responds and the fetus responds, all completely unconscious, mm. but it can push the maternal body actually into a state where both the mother and the fetus are at risk in terms of their viability. So... So it, it's interesting and scary and weird and cool that, you know, you can have these systems where underlying it, there's a lot of overlapping interests. But if you start this sort of, you know, move and counter move and counter move and counter move and counter move, mm. you can end up. It's an arms race, right? Yeah, exactly. It's an arms race. Yeah. And then yeah. everybody can end up dead, which right. fucking yes. sucks, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, going going back to the beginning of sexual reproduction, at that point you have this slight misalignment between the interests of the male, which I guess in this case is defined as the the sex that provides less resources to the offspring or has like less uh, obligate parental investment is the term. So it can get away with contributing less to the creation of offspring and then the female who contributes uh, more. And there's a slippage between their interests because the male will care as much about the female's future reproduction as the female does if there's permanent monogamy between them. But in as much as there's not permanent mandatory monogamy between them, then the the female cares 100% about her future and the male cares less than 100%. And so the male wants to ramp up the uh, relative to the to the female how many resources the offspring extract from the female, uh, like sacrificing her future uh, potential uh, reproduction. And yeah, and basically this just escalates over time. So the male uh, like bids for more and then the female offsets it by changing their genes. And then the male bids higher to offset that. And then the female bids higher to offset that until you've got radically different requests, uh, radically requests a different procurement <laughs> of resources mm-hmm. from the child, depending on whether we're talking about the, the male coded or female coded uh, con- contribution to the genome. Right. And then if you only have one of them, then it, the th- system's just completely broken. And then it's just completely out of whack and in no one's interest. It, you'd either have a massive baby that kills the mother or a completely a malnourished baby that couldn't survive. Yeah, sometimes, crazy. Sometimes I use the analogy of a tug of war, right? And so yeah. what you have is a situation where, you know, the maternal interests are pulling on one end and the paternal interests are pulling on the other end. And every time, you know, one side tugs harder, the other side has to tug harder again in order to just keep things in the same place. And then, you know, if you end up with a mutation that interferes 
with one of the genes that regulates how much is being pulled, then you can actually end up in a situation that is, you know, suboptimal for both parties. It's outside of that range of, yeah, what would make sense, you know? So it's like, yeah, it's like you've got like, you know, the balance in the middle and the, you know, yeah, the paternal interest would like it a little bit this way and the maternal would like it a little bit this way, but none of them want the rope to go slack and just have nothing in that range at all. Yeah. What is the limiting factor on this? Because I suppose it it escalates to an explosive and dangerous situation where you really have to hope that everything is perfectly balanced. Otherwise it breaks. But it seems like something must stop this at some point. Or or, or maybe not. Maybe you just have like all of the males' genes are like coded to go really hard to to extract as many resources as they can. The female is the opposite. And that's where it stops. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are, I think, a few kind of constraints on the evolution of this. I mean, one is obviously that if there's you know, too much of attention and you have mutations often enough that lead to, you know, a total, totally suboptimal situation, then um, the sort of more intensely competitive genes on the whole are going to be less favored because you can have these catastrophic outcomes. And there's also, you know, you also have this sort of evolution of these regulatory pathways as well. And so when you if you have a situation where, you know, what's being encoded is this sort of escalation and counter escalation, like on the timescale of the organism's lifetime, or, you know, on the timescale of a pregnancy, if those genes that code for that escalation are more likely to lead to, you know, a catastrophic situation where, you know, nobody's evolutionary interests are being served, then there's also going to be less selection on that. Um, I actually have a game that I designed for like teaching about this in the classroom where you you basically have um, like one individual plays like the parent and then you have three that are like the the baby bird. So it's like a mother bird Mm -hmm. and baby bird, just like, so, you know, takes a little bit out of the realm of like, you know, being human. And then the parent is like rolling a die every time period and has to choose how many points to give to each of the three offspring. And um, the offspring then can decide to either kind of accept what the parent gives, or they can use one unit of energy to compel the parent to give them two units of energy. Mm-hmm. And then the parent can either comply or use one unit of energy to shut down the request. So you have a situation where you can have dead loss, right? If I request you know, or or make a demand, right? I use one unit of energy to say, hey, give me two. And then you say no, then we have both just lost a unit of energy. And if I succeed, then, you know, I've gained one, but at a greater expense to you, right? You've lost two. So it's a very sort of simple way of getting this tension across. And, um, you know, and then I play it with my class where there are a dozen or so of these groups of four. And then we talk about it afterwards, right? And you see like, oh yeah, where like everyone was like signaling and shutting down. Like they, in the end, you know, didn't have as as high success as the groups that were actually being more cooperative and not protesting. And, and it's also, it can be very funny sometimes, right? Because you'll have yeah. like one of, <laughs> the, you know, one of the baby birds is like a total pain in the ass and all the other siblings are like, oh, come on, you're, you know, making it bad for all of us. So it's a really fun, fun way for the the students to learn about these ideas of um, genetic conflict and um, in particular parent offspring 
conflict. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I deliberately wasn't using human-specific language. Uh, I mean, in part because it's just distasteful to think about this. Uh, it is, a, a, yeah. Among, among humans. But also, it would, this would be less pronounced among humans relative to most species because humans often reproduce together repeatedly, whereas in many species, male and female go their separate ways and don't mm-hmm. uh, don't reproduce uh, like year after year. Yeah. Uh, in which case, the male has almost no interest in the uh, future reproduction of the of the female beyond that point. And, and this is going to be even more extreme, <laughs> going to be even yeah. more awful. Yeah. And, and when we play it, you know, it's just like a parent and then offspring because it's really the same, the same dynamics. If you just have one individual, that's basically like the individual who has access to the resources and is trying to distribute them. That's really the key piece of this. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, what we associate with being, male or female in any broader sense. It's just who's who's distributing the resources. So Yeah. I don't know why I included this. I, I guess it's just the moral of the story to me is that game theory and evolution and genetic conflict are really, really screwed up. <laughs> it's, just, it's a it's a dark, dark vision of the world. And yeah. I'm glad and I'm glad that people on a conscious level don't operate this way. Or at least like only only ten percent. I'm I'm so glad too. But and you know what though? I will add though that like it can be really funny. And, and like from, you know, teaching in my class and using these games, the students have a lot of fun and end up making lots of jokes that I think like, I think anytime you have tension, you have conflict. Um, we like humans, we like to learn about that and engage about that because it's really important for us to understand how those things the work. stuff of life. Yeah. And so I think it can, like, I think there's a sort of sense in which maybe you know, it's inherently rewarding to think and talk about it in terms that are humorous because it does allow us to like wrap our heads around it, but without taking it so seriously that, you know, it has to make us depressed. All right. We've done cancer and cooperation to uh, to death. So let's, let's push on to something more cheerful. As you said in the intro, your next book, uh, Everything is Fine, How to Thrive in the Apocalypse, uh, is about how we think about civilizational disaster scenarios and the effect that thinking about that has on us. This is super relevant to this audience because a lot of listeners uh, study, you know, nuclear war, bioterrorism, worst case climate change, artificial intelligence gone wrong. And naturally, that can be uh, pretty psychologically taxing. And it's also worth thinking about how you're thinking about it and what, uh, what potential biases you might be bringing. Yeah, what's the problem, the practical problem that you were hoping to, to, to solve with this one? Uh, yes. So so the book, um, it, it's called Everything is Fine! Exclamation point, How to Thrive in the Apocalypse. And, and it's meant to be both sort of serious and ironic. Like, yes, everything is fine on some level, but really we are also in denial about everything being fine. We have to kind of deal with that. But really the only way that things ultimately will be fine and are fine is if we are able to figure out how to network our brains together in an effective way to leverage all the information that we have about how our systems work. Um, And not just the sort of technicalities of our, you know, global systems and ecological systems and economic systems, but also the social systems that we as humans have that have helped us deal with risk for as long as we have been around. And so it's kind of a, um, you know, half like humorous field guide to living in our apocalyptic times and half a call for, you know, bringing our heads together to do a much better job of sharing information and managing risk collectively and being able to sort of build that up from um, simpler components. And so, so for me, the whole point of the book is to, number one, make the 
crazy times that we're living in now not feel quite so scary by bringing some humor, some playfulness, some cool illustrations from uh, Neil Smith in to make it fun. And then kind of creating a space that I hope people will see as sort of an invitation for us to to all work together more effectively and leverage our ability to cooperate and share information in a way that will help us do a better job of dealing with all of the challenges we're facing now and will absolutely continue to face as the future unfolds. You mentioned early, early on in the book that um, it seems like human beings have found it extremely gripping to talk about massive disasters and ways that things go really wrong for as long as we have records for, mm-hmm. <laughs> from, from people. Yeah, t- t- tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we look at small scale societies, if we look at any societies around the world, really, you know, ideas about that, you know, there are threats out there in the world, some of which might sort of end civilization as we know it, um, or or simply the idea that there are sort of cycles where sometimes things are good and then sometimes things are worse and that, you know, we have to have sort of mechanisms for being able to deal with those times when things are worse. Those are all very, very common, you know, probably universal across all societies. And, you know, storytelling is, I think, an important piece also of, you know, especially in small scale societies, how people kind of retain that memory, you know, when things are good that, yeah, sometimes things aren't so good. And so, you know, we need to be thinking about how to manage risk, you know, at all times, you know, even if it's just like on a yearly basis, like if you, you know, deal with really severe winter storms, like um, Mm. Mongolian herders do, right? They're managing risk all year. They're not just waiting until the winter storm hits. They're fixing, you know, their shelters for themselves and their livestock. They're collecting hay and, you know, other feeds so that they can keep their livestock alive through the winter. And, you know, you can kind of think of that on then larger scales where we want to be managing risk proactively, mm-hmm. not just waiting for for a crisis and then and then dealing with it in that moment. Yeah. I suppose it um it makes sense that humans would have a big attraction towards thinking about ways that things could go wrong. I suppose it's an it's a it's another expression of uh, how I mean people just tend to worry a lot. Like our default way of yeah. like when we're just sitting alone by ourselves, we tend to like think about the way there ways that things could go wrong in future a lot, or at least uh, yeah. many people have that uh, have that predilection. And I guess it makes sense for societies as a whole to also think about ways that things could go wrong for society, and uh, so that you, so you can plan ahead uh, and think about ways that you that you might solve it. it seems like. Humans are also interested in like even more extreme disaster scenarios than that. It makes sense that we'd be worried about the winter and the weather and some flooding, uh, a drought. But there's something that's also very attractive about just thinking about the end times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when you say end times, right, and you think about like really like big disasters, I think one of the things about that that's compelling and scary, of course, um, is the idea that a lot of the structures that we you know, know the norms of society, the just the ways that we do things, those can and often do change in those times. I mean, even, you know, with the COVID pandemic, which, you know, on a sort of long time frame is not a particularly horrible pandemic. I mean, obviously it was very, very bad, but just compared to, you know, others that could have been know, much worse. Could have been much worse, has been much worse. Um it changed so many things about how society was structured. And, you know, people talked about it as an apocalypse. And I mean, I think like 
you know, COVID also kind of brought the idea of like the apocalypse as like a household word kind of, you know, like people just started using it. Um, and you know, I started talking about the before times like right away when COVID <laughs> happened. Cause I was like, all right, now we can, you know, kind of use the apocalypse playfully, Yeah. but you know, it's serious. It's, it's hard, but there's also a sort of interesting open-endedness and potential for creativity, potential for re-envisioning things that comes when systems get disrupted. And so I think that there's both opportunity to think about how we might do things differently when a lot of change is already being forced, mm. but is also, you know, it's also scary and can potentially be very problematic to have institutions disrupted that might actually be playing a very important role already in regulating cooperation or keeping society functioning in a way that doesn't disadvantage some people. But there also might be things about the way society is working that can definitely be improved, right? And when a lot of things change, that I think opens up some opportunities to to think differently about how we're doing things. Are there any uh, particular classes of disasters that trouble you in particular? I suppose yeah, earlier this year, I was pretty worried about the risk of nuclear war yeah. due, to, due to Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. It felt felt all too all too real uh, sometimes. I guess really rapid advances in AI this year also have kind of uh, had me a bit on edge. You, you don't know what AI is going to be capable uh, capable of next. Yeah. That seems like uh, the future's uh, coming at us pretty fast. Yeah, is, are there any things that uh, trouble you? Yeah, well, off the top of my head, I've got three. So certainly nuclear events, um, very, very of the moment now. And I think also will not go away as a threat um, because uh, you know, we just we have the technological capacity to do this. And I don't think that we're going to be able to get to a point where every you know, entity who could make a nuclear weapon would refrain from from doing that. So I think it's it's something that is likely to be there for the long term. Um, future pandemics, absolutely. I think, you know, we saw with COVID, um, you know, just how vulnerable our systems were. And um, unfortunately, we haven't done a huge amount to try to fix the weaknesses um, and vulnerabilities in the systems that we have for early response to emerging pandemics. Um, so I worry about that. And, you know, my my AI worry is less of sort of like what happens um, with AI on its own. And it's my worry is much more sort of what happens with AI in combination with humans that have goals that are nefarious. And I think that there's a there's a sort of leveraging that you can get when you bring together human minds and the, you know, artificial minds that allows for a level of exploitation and undermining of, you know, systems that you you just can't get with one or the other separately. Mm. And I'm very aware of the the weaknesses that AIs have in terms of some of the sort of like big picture assessments of, you know, like what actually is a path that makes sense to go given a lot of, you know, uncertain variables and, you know, potential pitfalls that it might be hard to sort of represent all of those if you don't already understand them well enough yourself to articulate them in computational terms. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think there are humans who have sort of instincts 
about how to navigate very complex strategic situations um, that when you pair that with the computational power, the raw power that, you know, artificial minds have and their ability to integrate, you know, massive amounts of data, to me, that's, that's the scary thing. And I think to some extent, we're kind of already there in that like human AI interface apocalypse. Mm. So yeah, with the the chatbots improving as quickly as they are. I mean, so even if you don't have any alignment issues between humans and uh, machine learning models, I, uh, I I don't know what we do in a world where someone with, you know, a few thousand dollars worth of computer hardware can effectively produce the language output of 10,000 people having conversations or 1,000 people having having conversations. Or they can just like output all of this text as if they're simulating all kinds of realistic human interaction, you know, sending emails, posting stuff online. Uh, I mean, you could even, you can even simulate video extremely realistically now. <laughs> I just, I don't know what that world looks like. Yeah. It's coming down the barrel awfully, awfully fast. It, it uh, is. Just, we need, we're going to need to adapt all of these protective mechanisms in order to prevent like fake people, basically, uh, dominating society. I, I mean, we have it already, right? I mean, it's, I don't know what the data is about what's actually going on on Twitter in terms of this, but from the friends I have who are, you know, on Twitter in spaces where there's a lot of, there used to be a lot of valuable dialogue going on. They're becoming dominated by what, you know, sounds to me from their descriptions, like a bunch of nasty chatbots that are just, you know, trying to interfere with what otherwise would be real conversation. So, yeah. Um, so, the, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I guess I've definitely seen that on Twitter. That, that, that's been the case for a while. You've got this problem with really stupid bots that just, mm-hmm. well, that, that just interject nonsense and shut down useful conversations. Yeah. The crazy thing is, now it's going to be potentially very cheap to have 100,000 bots arguing extremely articulately, extremely <laughs> persuasively, like as well as any human could in favor of like whatever chosen thing yeah. and having real conversations back and forth based on what people are saying. I'm not sure whether you've tried chat GPT, but it's really impressive. At least we've gotten to the level of being able to um, reproduce arguments at the level of like kind of a smart 15 year old. <laughs> uh, but at some wow. point, they're just going to be able to articulate arguments in these chats as like better, better than humans might be able to, honestly. In yeah. all the cases and it's a very strange future. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a, a lot of really interesting things to explore about this sort of issue of, you know, human AI interactions. And, you know, you mentioned the alignment issue. And, you know, I think we tend to think about that as a large scale, right? Like alignment with human interests and human well-being. But, you know, the fact is humans have their own strategic goals and interests, you know, that are many, many of them are at the individual level or at the, you know, level of groups or at the level of nation states and things like that. And so, you know, to the extent that AI can be leveraged for particular interests. I think that that is, and that, that process of really, you know, what's ultimately cooperation between humans and AI to accomplish certain goals, even if those goals are at the expense of the rest of humanity. To me, that is one of the most important issues for us to grapple with at this moment with what's, you know, what's happening with AI right now. Yeah. I guess setting aside AI, in the in the first chapter of the book, which you kindly sent me, you seem kind of very negative about kind of the current moment that we're in, or the kind of crises that we're facing, or like how apocalyptic our, our current uh, moment is. But I guess yeah, when I looked it up on our world in data, it seems like globally deaths from natural disasters uh, are, are going way down. So deaths from famine, from drought, from flooding, from earthquakes, from all of that, uh, all of that sort of thing. 
Yeah. Do you think that we really do in some ways live in an era of very like of unusual risk? Or is it maybe just that we have heightened perception of risk? So I think there, there are a lot of things going on. I think we have, you know, many systems that have done a decent job of helping us to manage risk using financial instruments and things. But I think that we have a lot of vulnerabilities that are sort of just inherent in living in a in a world that is is changing rapidly right now um, on so many levels. And so there's, um, you know, simultaneously, you know, we can sort of look at some of the, the data like on our world and data and see, you know, there are a lot of ways that things have been have been improving. But I think that the key piece is really that, you know, we have vulnerabilities that exist and I think are growing that we would do well to try to get ahead of in terms of managing them. And I think that also just on a on a sort of human scale that people's anxiety about what's happening in the world is going up, right? Like it's just, yeah. there. there's this sense of like change is happening so fast. Um, there are, you know, all of these risks. I mean, the example you brought up of sort of the possibility of nuclear events, um, right? I mean, the doomsday clock is, you know, pretty damn close to midnight and has been for a while. So, you know, if we think of like the things that could kind of end the world like that, you know, that's that's certainly, I think, a real and present risk. And and there's also, you know, there's there are a lot of natural disasters that I think have been striking closer to home for people in terms of wildfires, in terms of you know, droughts, especially, you know, in the U.S., like there's um, just, you know, serious issues with water use and availability in the medium term. And, you know, people see out their backyards or on their drives to work that like things aren't the same with water or you can't actually take your boat out, right? So I think that there's a, it's something that's present for people in their lives um, and and not just because of the pandemic kind of making like apocalyptic, you know, ideas a little more in vogue. Yeah. Um, So I think that, you know, there's, there's certainly we're at it. We're sort of at an apocalyptic kind of moment just in terms of like, I think people's receptivity to the idea that maybe we should be managing risk more proactively. And yeah. And, and a lot of the sort of setup for the book with the first chapter is kind of meant to like put a, a like a playful tone yeah. on the fact that things are fucked up in a lot of ways right now. So it, <laughs> yeah. it's it's not meant to be like pessimistic, really. It's just like, hey, there's a lot of stuff going Drawing on. attention to the risks that we face. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah what, so what kind of advice do you have about how people should think about the apocalypse in order to, I guess, yeah, be happier while, while they're doing it and maybe think about it in a, in a more productive way? Yeah. Uh, so... I think one of the easiest things that we can do is just think about risk management in a, in a fun way, right? So like there are a lot of things that we can do at the household level um, to manage risk better. And then we can also sort of build communities that do a better job of managing risk. And then, and then you can take that up to, you know, the highest scales as well. Um, And, you know, things like making sure that you're ready for an emergency, right? So there's this idea of Mm. all hazards preparation, which is basically just 
emergency preparation, but you can make it a little bit more fun by being like, hey, are you ready for the zombie <laughs> apocalypse? You know, do you have like 72 hours worth of stuff so you could just shelter in place? Um, so, you know, things like some basic emergency preparedness, um, that actually helps to make our, our overall systems more robust too, because if there is a natural disaster and all households are able to shelter in place, say for 72 hours, then whatever institutional level support is available to to deal with the problem can be focused on the acute problem as opposed to having to split effort between the problem and uh, the humanitarian crisis that can emerge in those situations. So, and, and that's not to put it all on like individual households to do this because, you know, really we should all be thinking about how can we help everyone in our communities be able to, you know, weather a, a storm, um, you know, supporting yeah. all households in being able to have what they need to, for example, shelter in place. Just just to take one example of, you know, the, the kinds of things that that we can do. So so that's one. And, uh, and, and then the other one is, you know, kind of building these uh, networks where we can get help in times of need, ask for help. Um, those often spontaneously hmm. emerge in disasters, but, you know, having some networks already set up ahead of time before things get really bad um, is, it's an easy way to manage risk by sort of doing what people call huh. limited risk pooling, where yeah. like, yeah, if you're in need and I'm available, you know, I have enough to help, then I'll just help you without yeah. expecting to get paid back. That's interesting. I haven't really heard that idea before. What, what sort of uh, agreements would you, or like what sort of relationships might you want to build uh, ahead of time? I suppose here we're kind of thinking of disasters like, well, I suppose in an extreme place, nuclear war, possibly, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you manage to survive it. Uh, I guess also earthquakes would be another classic yeah. or massive wildfires in some places. Yeah. Yep. Flooding, um, uh, you know, massive power outages in the winter or the summer, right? Like there's, there are a lot of... Yeah, I guess, I suppose now we have to worry about cyber attacks that could shut down the electricity grid, yep. something kind of unprecedented. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So so this kind of then opens up like this whole other whole other area of my work, which is really about looking at cooperation in human society. So we have this project called the Human Generosity Project, where we've looked at almost a dozen small scale societies around the world now um, and how they help each other. Um, how people within those societies help each other in times of need. And we have found that if you kind of look at the risk management strategies that people are using, that need-based transfers, this like, you know, hey, if I'm in need, I will only ask for help if I'm genuinely in need. And then Mm. if you receive a request, you will help if you're able to without going below what you need. So we see this um, in, in pretty much every society. The one society where... They don't use it as much um, as this uh, society I was telling you about in Mongolia where they have these, you know, winters that are just horrible. So they have to help each other kind of ahead of time. They have to manage the risk proactively rather than, you know, um, because they can't like go to each other's houses when there's like six feet of snow outside. Oh, wow. Um, Okay. So what do they do? So they um, they will help each other build shelters and make I sure see. that everybody has the resources so that they need. To- yeah, so it's basically sheltering in place for the winter. They're helping each other be able to do that for their families and their livestock. Wow. But but anyway, I would emigrate. It sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but but 
the bottom yeah. line here is that people, works. you know, yeah. around the world in small scale societies do this. Um, and also like in rural societies here in the U.S. So we've um, studied ranchers in the um, southwest um, in here in Arizona and New Mexico near the border um, with Mexico. And they have a system they call neighboring, which is largely a need based transfer system where they help each other in times of need. And they um, don't expect to get paid back for those things that like arise unpredictably. So these are things that already exist and they're really good at handling the kinds of things that typically we want insurance for, right? Those things that we can't predict and can't control. And if you take them to, if you take it to the extreme, there's certain things that market-based insurance actually cannot insure against because there's no way to um everyone gets hit at once yeah so that's one possibility everyone gets hit at once but another is just that it hasn't happened yet and there's no way to really calculate what the probability is of the event or how severe it would be and in the absence of any of that information you can't calculate what an insurance premium could be it's an actuarial problem right it's like you need the data in order to price the insurance but with these need-based transfer networks you know, they like you can at least have them in place for any kinds of needs that arise unpredictably. Now, whether the system will be able to effectively handle that, those is another question, but you at least are able to set up systems that can deal with things that are that have never happened before that we can't even understand what the risks are like. So, yeah. So I live in a city, uh, London. What, what should I try to coordinate with my with my neighbors around? I suppose a big issue is people don't have very large places, so you can't really stock. Oh, it's like difficult to stockpile enough water or food or or anything like that. And I guess in a in a war scenario, London's a very juicy target, so uh, so things could get pretty grim. Yeah, I mean, I think no matter where you live, having seventy two hours of supplies is wise, and um, and you can actually do this in a way that makes sense for having a very busy lifestyle, which is something that I love. Um, so, you know, if, if you apocalypse sort of- Apocalypse prep on the go. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, you know, apocalypse casual lifestyle. Like, how do you do this? Yeah. Well, like, for example, um, you know, if you like uh, couscous, couscous is a great- food to have around. Not only can you prepare it very quickly on a weeknight if you need something to eat, but it stores well and you actually don't even need hot water to prepare it. You just you can just add water to it and let it sit for like a half an hour and then you could eat it. So if couscous is something that like you're fine with, then you can just make sure to buy enough couscous at the store that you could, you know, at least have it be part of what you would be eating for those 72 hours. And whenever you buy a new one, you put it at the back and you just have like some extras. Mm. And then, you know, like it also makes it easier when you're super busy and you don't have time to go to the store. You're like, oh, I got my 72 hours of preps. I mean, obviously next time you go to the store, you want to like re-up. But, um, you know, sort of thinking about being prepared, not as like, oh, I have to go and like, figure out how to buy like really long shelf life food on Amazon. And then, you know, what, who's a reliable source for this? No, you just look at the kinds of things that you like to eat that are shelf stable and just have more of those on hand because that will make your day-to-day life easier and also will put you in a better position if something totally unexpected happens and you have to shelter in place. 
Yeah, the UK has a pretty precarious food situation, actually, because it relies on constant stream of imports. Um, I mean, it doesn't produce anywhere near enough food for the population uh, that it has. So I would suggest having enough food for weeks, conceivably months would be not not outrageous if you were able to do that here. Uh, I guess the storage issues, I did I did at one point uh, store a whole bunch of rice, but I didn't store it well enough and mice got into it. And that was very embarrassing. I uh, was a very <laughs> amateurish uh, prepper. <laughs> um, yeah. But yes, now we have some rice and pasta in a thick Tupperware. Excellent, (laughs) excellent. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I mean, I think like that another thing is just not feeling intimidated by like, oh, I have to do all of these things. It's like, no, just start with like having enough water around and, um, you know, having some extra dry food that is stuff that you eat anyway. And then, you know, you can work from there. It's not like you have to do all of the things all at once or anticipate every possibility because you just can't, you know? And, mm. you know, and, and having conversations with people about like, you know, what they're doing, do they have their preps? Like it can be fun. Mm. And, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> if you get into like a, you know, a little social competition about it, I could be like playful fun. Like, all right, let's, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I have this idea for like a, like a new kind of dinner party. I haven't tried it yet, but I, I absolutely want to, which is like you, um, you like roll the dice to like figure out whose house you're going to go to. And then you show up right. at that house and then you have to figure out how to like make a really nice <laughs> dinner with just the shelf stable prep food that's there. And so then you kind of practice like making fun meals and, um, you know, surviving in your like mini apocalypse dinner party. Um, so stuff like yeah. that, I think, you know, we could make it fun. And then it just kind of puts our attention on like, yeah, maybe we should just be ready for the unexpected so that at least we have some more time to plan, you know, and that's mm-hmm. the thing. It's like, you might not be able to like have enough food around to actually manage the risk of something catastrophic that would happen, but you can have enough food around so that you have a few days to figure out what your next steps out. are if something, yeah. you know, really catastrophic happens. Yeah. Uh, makes makes a lot of sense. Because yeah, when, when you start talking about yeah, stockpiling food uh, to protect yourself against disasters, I, guess, I think I think some people's eyes ro- kind of roll and yeah. <laughs> you're a bit crazy. They start yeah. associating you with, with with preppers who get who get really into it. Um, maybe a little bit a little bit too into it. But earlier this year, my my partner and I did spend a bunch of time thinking about you know what 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 would we do if there's a nuclear war and we, yeah. and we survive? Like, what what would that look like? Uh, I mean, it was very long odds, but uh, maybe it was getting probable enough that it was worth having a conversation about it. Yeah, it is really fun on some level. Exactly, <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, maybe maybe yeah. not everyone enjoys this, so uh, so it's uh, easier for them to kind of have disdain for survivalists. But um, there is something just yeah, very entertaining. I guess you know our, our lives can be a little bit boring on a, on a day to day level. Uh, imagining you know what would we do if just everything was destroyed? Uh, how would how would we cope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like, a, a, right, people have called it survival porn, right? There's something like, just like appealing about like imagining yourself like out there or inside or trying to survive, yeah. you know, in challenging odds. Um, it's, mm. yeah, it's like a little, like a, it's a story that we like tell ourselves, right? That makes us, <laughs> guess, you know, have fun and feel good. So. <laughs> when we're little kids, we play make-believe all the time and it's really fun. But as grown-ups, we don't get to do that very much. Yeah. Uh, but, but this gives us an excuse to imagine a really different reality. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's, you know, that really puts a really, you know, nice like pin on what I'm trying to do with this book, which is like, it's an invitation to play a little bit of make believe about all of the things that could go wrong, things that are already going wrong place. I mean, there's places in the world that are just straight up apocalyptic right now. Right. But yeah. if we go into that place of like having fun 
imagining the zombie apocalypse or how we would survive in a, you know, nuclear war where there were giant, huge spiders outside, right? Like you like add something fun and silly and then it like, it makes it not as real, which makes it easier for us to engage without that fear response kind of dominating. Right. Um, And so I think like, you know, we can learn a lot from looking at like horror and looking at like apocalyptic fiction and like, you know, people like to engage with these things, if there there's enough of an element of play to it, and so I think if we can keep that playfulness, uh, cultivate that playfulness, and make it social as well, you know that's really that's what's going to help us um, to manage our risk as individuals, and ultimately, you know, collectively manage our societal risk more effectively. Yeah, what's uh, something that people worry about in the apocalypse or in a catastrophe that maybe they shouldn't worry about uh, quite as much as they do. Mm, yeah. Uh, well, the big one for me is this, like, this idea that as soon as something starts going wrong, that the fabric of society is going to fall apart and that everyone will just be like every person for themselves. Um, because if if we look at, you know, what actually happens during times of disaster, people jump into action to help each other, um, you know, in this sort of need-based way, even helping strangers, even, you know, going to extreme risks yourself to like rescue people. Like people just do this spontaneously when the shit hits the fan. And yes, if disasters go on for a really long time, if you have, you know, slow burn situations where people are starving and that lasts for, you know, months. Siege warfare. Years, right? Yeah. Then when people are in a state where they just like literally don't have enough food or water or whatever, like our physiology starts to not function normally. And, you know, things can break down once you get into that like famine territory. But if we're just talking about sort of acute disasters and if we're talking about situations where ultimately people are able to jump in and and help each other and, you know, and deal with like fixing some of the problems that have arisen together, you see that in the first few weeks, especially after a disaster before everyone kind of like, oh, now we're going to kind of go back to normal. So yeah, so I think that people having the wrong assumptions about what happens in those moments, um, not only is that not supported by what we see in times of disaster, I think it can also be really problematic. Destructive attitude. Yes. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily put us in a good place to be proactively managing risk together either. Right. If you're like, oh, you know, everybody's going to turn on everyone. Everyone for themselves. I got to get my knife. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The sort of like, you know, survivor mentality, right. You know, with that like show, right. Like in the end, it's like everybody's pitted against everyone else, even if they cooperate a little bit, you know, like often that's not how it works. Usually that's not how it works. You know, we humans survive because we, you know, cooperate and work together. And that is how we have survived. How we got here. Forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, hunter gatherers, like you don't just have one like hunter gatherer, like foraging and hunting, (laughs) like they live in a group and like they share, you know, at um, a central place, usually around a fire, right? Like with whoever's gotten what, like, that's just, that's, Mm how we it's how our organism operates basically yeah yeah, yeah. and we uh, like it like we like to eat a, a single hunter gatherer is a dead hunter gatherer <laughs> yeah 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 and and I, you know i think like a lot of that's reflected in just how we're set up 
psychologically and emotionally, right? We like eating with people, you know, like a dinner party is super fun or like preparing food with people or, you know, just spending time with others, creating things together or, you know, like we really thrive on being social and taking care of others to a certain extent too, right? That's a, it's, it's something that a lot of people intrinsically enjoy. And so I think um, really uh, delving into that side of, you know, our human nature that desires to be interdependent and embedded and generous and helping others and, you know, part of systems that are functioning well, where, you know, we're there to back each other up and manage risk together. I think, you know, we like that stuff and the better we can understand the sort of evolutionary mechanisms and, you know, cognitive and emotional mechanisms that underlie that, the better a job we will be able to do to manage the risk of the multitude of apocalypses that we're likely to be facing <laughs> in the future. things can go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been interesting watching the conventional wisdom on this shift over the last few years. I think back in 2019, the conventional wisdom, or like people's intuitions were really that even quite modest disasters would lead to the breakdown of law and order. Yeah, everyone's uh, just like stealing from one another uh, just because it's, it's a relatively mild problem. And then I remember early on in COVID-19, some people were predicting, oh, there's going to be like blood on the streets. It's going to be chaos. Uh, everyone is just going to look out for themselves. Uh, there'll be a crime wave. And the exact reverse was the truth. Crime went way down. Violence went way down. I mean, to start with, if people are staying home, (laughs) it's much harder to get into fights. Uh, It's much harder to burglarize their house when when there's people in there. Yeah. I think actually the the US is almost the only country in the world where crime didn't go down uh, all all that much. I think there was some kind of unique uh, US specific uh, factors there. Although I think it did go down in the short term. But yeah, now, now there's always, there's been quite a big correction. And I keep hearing this point that people make that it's remarkable how extraordinarily cooperative humans are when things go wrong. Like when everyone's part of the same struggle, the same, you know, they're fighting against adversity together, then actually we're way more cooperative in that situation than we are just on a typical day yeah. uh, when we're on our commute to, to work normally. I wonder, is it possible that we've overcorrected in, in some way? Is there anything to be said for the idea that people can be uh, uncooperative? Or yeah, is there any, any way to temper that? I mean, absolutely. It's a, it's a matter of, sort of understanding what in what ranges of parameters you get what behavior, right? So in situations where things are bad for a long time and people are starving, then you can get, you know, what we would consider the breakdown of like society and families and all, all of that. Um, mm. Because, you know, people are literally just on the brink of dying. It's, it's quite zero sum. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, I think we don't really know, like when you get to the point of, people being in that sort of starvation state where they're they're very likely to die like what of the behavior that you see would we call adaptive from an evolutionary perspective i.e. was selected because it provided an advantage versus a byproduct so it's just like this is a very unusual state for the organism to be in and there are things that are happening that are just the result of mm, molecular pathways accidental. that are yeah mm. so so we don't know and uh, you know it's not something that we can really study obviously so i think um but practically what we see is in those situations that you you do get a a breakdown. And, you know, the other situation where you definitely can have um, favoring of cheating is in, you know, groups where there's a bunch of anonymity, they're large, um, people don't necessarily 
feel like they have a, a stake in the well-being of the group that they're a part of. There's, um, there's not kind of peer monitoring or perhaps, uh, you know, justice done when uh, yeah. injustices are committed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, you know, in those kinds of situations, yeah, individuals that are exploiting are going to do better. And if people see that exploitation and cheating is happening, then that can very quickly unravel, you know, if the sort of norms start changing about that. Um, So I think, you know, we absolutely need to consider both sides of the coin here. You know, what are the situations where cooperation is not just not just makes evolutionary sense, but also is like, you know, how people behave in practice. And then where are the situations where, you know, exploitation and and cheating really are problems, both from an evolutionary perspective and a practical perspective, again. Cool. Uh, well, I'm sure there's uh, tons more, <laughs> there will be tons more in the in the book on it when it comes out. One of the fun things about imagining these scenarios is that they're so diverse that you can just keep on going. And <laughs> there's so many different considerations. Uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things that you can think through. Uh, when When is the book coming out? Um, it will be coming out in the spring of 2024. So, so still, still a little ways away. Still, but... A little way away. Okay, well, yeah. Well, uh, hopefully we're all still around in spring of 2024 so yeah. that uh, people could buy the book and, yeah. uh, and, and get the extra advice. And I, and I am going to be posting lots of tips and things in, in the lead up. So um, I'm on Twitter and on Instagram and posting about the stuff all the time. So you can find me there if you, if you want to learn more or ask questions about it. I'm always happy to, to share. Yeah. Well, uh, you've been very generous with your time, but uh, we should finally set you free again to continue with your normal life. But I guess a final question is, I, I saw on your, your website that you're involved in some like zombie apocalypse medicine preparation thing. I don't really understand the, the nature of this, but uh, but what was it? And I guess what <laughs> what's yeah. something useful you learned about surviving the zombie apocalypse specifically? Yeah, well, so um, I, I started and I'm the executive producer for this like whole group of really fun and interesting scholars. Um, we we're called Zombified Media. And we have, you know, the the Zombified podcast that I co-host with my friend and colleague, um, Dave Lundberg-Henrik. We have this live stream channel called Channel Z, where we have all sorts of shows that are, you know, based around the idea that the zombie apocalypse is going on now. And here's like, you know, how you like get your pantry set up. Here's how you, you know, set up your go bag. Here's how you, you know, deal with the the zombies outside um, in a way that makes sense given cooperation theory, right? So, so we like, like kind of use the zombie apocalypse there as like a fun way to to engage people. And uh, it all actually started with the zombie apocalypse medicine meeting. So we just had the third one of those. We do those every two years. And it's basically an academic conference framed around this idea that the zombie apocalypse is going on and we have to try to understand, you know, zombie behavior. We have to, you know, look at like, what are the threats that we're facing in the world now? What are the threats we're facing in the future? And so it's, um, it's did, a really- Did your head of department sign off on this? Who, who approved this? <laughs> oh, um, so because we're, so Zombified Media is an educational nonprofit media company. Okay. So we yeah. can do whatever so the fuck what we you want, like. I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, but but um, that is, I have to acknowledge, we have a lot of support um, from ASU and, you know, uh, financially, but also, you know, there are a, a bunch of amazing people who are professors at ASU, part of yeah. the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics, um, in the psychology department, um, in the Center for the Future of Innovation Society, the Center for um, Science and the Imagination, lots of places that have supported us and 
and, you know, people who've come on and talked with us. So we, you know, we have a special relationship with ASU. It's great to see all of these bodies finally supporting an interdisciplinary research project. Like this. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so rarely does yeah. the interdisciplinary work get the support that it, that, that it deserves, but here it is. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I interrupted. Carry on. No, no, you're absolutely right. And, and I mean, part of why we all love it is because it is a space that is fundamentally interdisciplinary. And by um, setting up this frame that it's the zombie apocalypse and we're trying to figure out what to do, it automatically takes all of the sort of like jargon and like status positioning and like all of these things that are really obnoxious at academic meetings. Mm. It's just off the table. And the people who are into that stuff, they don't come to the meetings, right? So it's like, you know, it's like all these people who are like, (laughs) yeah, like, let's play. Let's talk about like, you know, um, zombie, you know, food choice as a way to like, understand like what's actually going in, in terms of how people perceive food and their disgust, right? So people come to it with this creativity. People even will design studies, you know, specifically in order to be able to talk about them at this meeting as a, you know, a fun way of like framing a research project. So it's a really generative, fun space. And now as we're, we're moving forward with zombified media, we're starting to integrate ASU students in um, helping to produce shows, um, coming up with content and, um, you know, sort of doing all levels of things. So we're, we're trying to make it this very interdisciplinary space that also bridges across, you know, the different levels of, of learners, because ultimately we're all trying to figure out what's going on mm-hmm. in this crazy yeah. world. Right. And um, I think young people have a lot to bring to the table that those of us who've been around for a few extra decades, like maybe, maybe we you know, or have some blinders on and we, we need to have fresh brains um, with us so that we're not just, you know, eating old brains that are like filled with prions, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I think uh, maybe in a real in a real zombie apocalypse, uh, most of our effort would be going towards uh, getting the CDC to finally acknowledge, stop dragging its heels on the fact that zombification is spread through biting and that uh, washing your hands is just never going to be sufficient. Um, <laughs> sick, sick CDC burn there. Um, sorry. <laughs> my, my original question was, yeah, what, what is a unusual what's what's an unusual tip that you've learned for how to survive a zombie apocalypse i mean i guess there's a wide range of different possible apocalypses uh of the zombie kind so maybe maybe you need to um, be more specific about the exact scenario you find yourself in but yeah any any, any advice for listeners Uh, so absolutely i've got one big tip and it applies to all apocalypses which is to build your z team so this is you know who are the people who you would want by your side in the zombie apocalypse or really in any hazard and that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody you know would have to be like literally by your side but somebody who you would want to be sharing information with that you would want to you know be there to back each other up if something went really wrong um and so that's i think you know and that's basically risk transfer that's the risk pooling the limited mm. risk pooling you know start setting up those relationships. You probably have a bunch of people in your life already. You just don't even think about them in those terms, but, you know, have a conversation with them about like, Hey, like if, you know, the zombie apocalypse happened, like, well, what would we do? Or if, you know, a nuclear event happened, if you want to be more serious, right? So you can start to have those conversations and um, just think about how you can proactively manage your risk. Uh, And, Cultivating that Z team is a super fun way to do it. Um, And, you know, hopefully, hopefully your Z team members, you know, they're like, hey, do you have your 72 hours? Because like, that's like a, 
you know, it's a bare uh, minimum to get in the team. Yeah. <laughs> and if not, you know, I, I let me help you. Right. So we, I think we can yeah. approach it from this perspective of how do we kind of bring, bring more people in to this idea of making managing risk fun. And, uh, and, and also, you know, we should absolutely not neglect the neighborhoods and communities that we live in. Um, because in the event of an emergency, it's likely that, there'll be some interdependence with the people who, who live near us. And then, you know, we can also think about scaling, scaling that up. Right. So there's like, you know, these sister cities programs that really they arose for like for cultural exchange and educational exchange. But now, you know, when there are disasters in cities that are sister cities, oftentimes there's just the spontaneous like outpouring of help. They, they're kind of like, you know, Z team members to each other. So I think we can kind of generalize this like Z team idea, um, this risk transfer idea to a lot of different levels, try to grow those systems that, you know, increase our resilience at the individual level, household level, neighborhood, community, national, international levels. And um, yeah, risk management for the win is what I, is how I like to look at it. (laughs) Uh, My guest today has been Athena Activist. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Athena. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to explore related ideas, I can recommend checking out episode 128, Chris Blackman on the five reasons wars happen. Perhaps episode 101, Robert Wright on using cognitive empathy to save the world. Uh, Or alternatively, episode 59, Cass Sunstein on how social change happens and why it's so often abrupt and unpredictable. You can also find out more from Athena herself by checking out channelz.org, zombified.org, or athenaactivist.org. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing by Marlon McGuire. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and, as always, put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. 